Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the comics that are coming out the week of November 9th, 2021. And it's very nice to have my partner in crime, Rocky from Comic Boom, joining me. Rocky, I know you had a rough week, man. How are you? Well, I'm doing better. You know, my, my dad died last week, so it was a uh, but it was a uh, it was a really great family gathering, and it was just surrounded by family and friends. And I just want to say thank you for that. I know there were some people on Twitter and uh, social media and on YouTube that reached out and gave their condolences to me, yourself included, Jace. I thank you for that, and Dark Knight and the rest of the YouTube community. It's a great comic book community, and we're all supportive of each other. And uh, yeah, it's one of those things, um, but. You know, it's, uh, it's, it was kind of, you know, I'm just trying to get back in the groove and I don't think I'm going to necessarily bring my A game tonight, uh, but, uh, you know, it'd be nice to talk, <laughs> talk about some other heroes other than my dad for a change. And I say that with great respect to my dad. <laughs> yeah. And again, my, my condolences, it's part of life, but it's never, it's never easy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's tough, but I, I will say, uh, you know, I doing this show for as long as I've been doing it now, 10 years and. Uh, I don't think I've ever had a co-host that that lasted as long as as you had. Like, you know, co-hosts have <laughs> gone in and out. Longtime listeners of podcasts will know that it has everything to do with the amount of episodes I put in and how much time and dedication. And it's kind of rare to find somebody else that wants to, you know, put in that much time, which is fine. But all that being said, you're actually the longest co-host I've ever had. You know, granted, we just do the D the Tuesday DCs, but it's been over a year now. Yeah. And you know, having done it by myself, I'm used to it having done it for so long, but man, I really missed you last week. I, when <laughs> I had nobody to bounce ideas off of. And I, I'm, I'm thinking as I'm talking about these books, like, am I really right in thinking this wasn't that good? You know, I really wish <laughs> yeah. was here because maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something. So yeah. well, I, I, I hear, I, I appreciated you too on the, on the one day that you were, uh, we did the one podcast where you were driving and uh, I, like I had to wing it. Car, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's so much. Yeah, it's so much tougher when you're on your own. So anyway, uh, glad you're back. And uh, I, I feel like this week was, it was sort of an average week, maybe slightly above average. That nothing really blew me away, which in, a, I suppose in a way is a little disappointing because we, we had a couple of things here that I was really looking forward to. Um, Justice League: The Last Ride finale, uh, chief among them, and while it was good, it didn't blow me away. So I don't know. I. It's an above average week, but in a way, I was a little disappointed with the week because I guess I just had some expectations, which normally I try not to do. How'd you yeah. feel about the week overall? Well, uh, yeah, honestly, I I don't know to what extent. Uh, like I had a pretty, like I said, I had a rough week with my dad passing. So, uh, but honestly, I, I these these comics, I really enjoyed Justice League Glass Ride, and I really liked action comics. But uh, the rest, I was kind of disappointed in. To what extent I might have been influenced by my person, the personal events in my life, yeah. I don't know, <laughs> so it's hard to say. But uh, I was—I have to say—I was overall, I was a little disappointed. But yeah, uh, fair enough. Well, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, first book we're going to talk about: Batman the Imposter, number two, written by Mattson Tomlin. Andrea Sorrentino handles the artwork. Jordi Belair does colors. Once again, there's no um, there's no credits page, so I can't credit the letter, un un unfortunately. Uh, but the art is solid. I mean, again, Andrea Sorrentino, we talked about it the first time we talked about this book. Anybody who saw his Gideon Falls work knows that he's really leveled up, and it, it's the same thing here. I mean, the art is spectacular. There's one particular page where you're, where you're sort of, 
I imagine you're supposed to be sort of looking up at, at this dome of, of Wayne Manor, which is fantastic, very much almost like a J.H. Williams inspired. You know, he always does those panel layouts that are circular uh, with insets in them. And, and I just thought that that was fantastic. If not a little, maybe hard, hard to read, like there's a couple of word balloons I read out of order, but again, it didn't, didn't pull me out of the story. And I thought it was fantastic. I did mention how much I liked the first issue when we talked about it. And then I talked a little bit about how the only thing I didn't like was the fact that Andrea Sorrentino was drawing Bruce Wayne to look like, um, Pattinson. What's his first? Is it Robert Pattinson? Yeah. Robert. There you go. Robert. I was thinking Edward, but I, I think that's his character and sparkly <laughs> vampire thing Spark- or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But, but anyway, I, I was like, yeah, cause I'm not sure how I feel. I, I don't particularly care for that casting. I hope that I'm wrong and he does a great job, but everything I've heard seems contrary to that. But, but regardless, I was like, ah, I just don't know this, that they're trying to tie this in with that. And then what I didn't realize was this guy, Mattson Tom, uh, Tomlin, he's the one that actually wrote the uh, wrote the movie, wrote the, the, the Batman this, movie that's coming up. So yeah. I guess it, it, it makes sense. So I couldn't help but have that in the back of my mind when I read this. And so uh, there's times where I wonder, okay, so how much of this mythology that we get in this Batman, the imposter, are we going to see in the movie? I don't remember in any of the trailers I've seen, not that I've watched them hundreds of times. Like some people have, I think I've seen them each. I think I've seen the Slater's trailer only once. And the first trailer, I think I watched maybe two or three times, but I don't remember seeing Alfred in any of the trailers. And I, I can't think off the top of my head of anybody who's playing him or has been cast uh, as him in the movie. And the reason I bring that up is because there's a scene here where Alfred is talking to Dr. Leslie uh, Tompkins early on when Bruce is still very much a young man. He's at boarding school and this is just wildly out of character for Alfred, um, where he's talking about being overwhelmed. What does he do when an 11-year-old is making explosives? The whole manor staff is terrified of him. Um, he, you know, He's so angry. I didn't ask for this. I'm not a parent. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a social worker. I'm a, I'm a damn butler. Uh, and then we find out that Bruce was sent away to boarding school. So it's almost like Alfred was like, I can't deal with this kid and just shove him off, which you know, you hear parents doing that. Like they've got a kid that's just out of control. They can't uh, get a handle on them and they sort of just look for the easy way out and ship them off and make them somebody else's problem. Now, I'm not saying that's always the wrong choice. Maybe a kid does need to go to military school. Maybe it's, they need structure or, or whatever. I mean, obviously we know Bruce Wayne's been through a lot of trauma watching his parents gun down right before his eyes. It just seemed like this is not the Alfred that we know. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's, miscasting or or mischaracterization to the level of the way Kevin Costner acted as Paul Kent in Man of Steel, but it's heading down that path. It's just not an Alfred that you ever would say. I mean, Alfred loved Bruce like his own son, you know, from from the time he was born. So I just don't, I don't know. It just felt out of character to me. But that being said, I still didn't think that it was, it didn't certainly didn't ruin this book for me. You know, it's a, it's a minor scene and and there's a lot to like here. Um, And what I do like about Matson's characterization is his characterization of Bruce Wayne. He's actually, he says it himself in his own word that he's falling in love with this detective, Alyssa Wong, who initially he was just using to gain access to um, Gotham city police files so he could try to track down 
a pattern. He knows there must be a pattern to the killings that this imposter is doing, but he doesn't have enough information, which, you know, you think Batman doesn't have enough information. What? Well, keep in mind, it's only, you know, he hasn't even been doing it, but not less than two years. I'm not exactly sure if it's, I think it's mentioned in the first issue that it's past the first year, but not past the second. So he's in his second year. He's still building his infrastructure and whatnot. And part of what he does here in this issue is hack into the Wesker uh, security cameras that are all over the city. And, and maybe that's how he sort of starts building uh, his ability to gather information around Gotham city. I sort of like that idea. Um, so it, all that to say this, this is a, a little bit younger, a little more inexperienced Bruce Wayne. He's not all there as Batman yet. I don't know. Maybe that'll help me enjoy the movie more and help me enjoy Pattinson's uh, portrayal of Batman more Bruce Wayne more. If I think of him as a sort of young and inexperienced, but that's also sort of the same cop out that uh, Goyer and, and Zack Snyder used in the Superman movie, Man of Steel. And that that didn't work for me. Superman, oh, he's just starting out. He has to learn not to kill. What, what are you talking about? Guy was raised in middle America. He has family values. We all know not to kill. I'm sitting here doing it right now. I'm sitting here right now, not killing. Nobody had to teach me how to do it. So I, I go back and forth on that. But I will say that this is a, it's a good story. The art is fantastic. Uh, that characterization of Bruce Wayne as a little more vulnerable. Uh, yes, he was trying to use Alyssa Wong to to further his mission. You know, he says at one point when he finally does sort of take advantage of her, she's she's asleep in his bed, and uh, he's there using her access to to get those police files. And he says, "I'm not proud of this, but the mission is all that matters. It's all that ever matters." But yet he's falling for her. He has he has feelings for uh, Alyssa Wong. Maybe. Not only because um, of just who she is and she's somebody who's interacting with him and he's so lonely, but the fact that her parents were murdered in front of her as well. So they do have that sort of in common. So there's a lot to like here. Um, and I will say bo bo I've felt this in reading both issues where just when you think the issue is going to be done, you get another four or five pages. It's a big chunk of story. Um, and I don't know if Mattson Tom, uh, Tomlin has ever written any comics before. Uh, it, and it doesn't always translate going from writing screenplay to writing comics, but this is a pretty well-paced, well-put-together comic in terms of uh, the technical aspects of it. So despite the fact that it might have a lot of tie-ins to a, a movie that I have my reservations about, I'm, I'm really enjoying the story. So uh, you have anything to add about this, Rock? Uh, well, as I said to you before, this is the one comic this week I, I haven't didn't have time to read, but as I'm paging through it as you're of uh, giving a very uh, thoughtful review, I, I did notice the the one page that really stood out for me was it was uh it's twelve panels, or pardon me, sixteen panel grid on the page, and it and it has uh, Bruce holding uh, Miss Wong's hand, and it, it, they're 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 looking at eagles, they look like the the or pigeons or eagles or something, and and as the panels progress, the they they change into bats. And then he's about to tell her, he says, I am. You think, is he going to tell her that he's Batman? <laughs> and then, of course, the next page, full page of surrounded by bats, not by birds. It's if, so it's like he's struggling between the Bruce Wayne and Batman persona. So artistically, it, it really, really resonated. And I thought that was, that was very effective to show that he is falling in love. And, of course, he states it bluntly on, on, the, on the double page spread. And, uh, yeah, it's quite impressive. And... Uh, and again, I mean, the fact that she also had her parents, she's looking at Bruce Wayne's wounds as they're laying in the bed and he's making up excuses how we, how we got this wound or that wound, scars on his body. And uh, you could, and, and just the, 
the bright red of showing her trauma as well. So it makes you wonder, though, if, if this is a new character, she could end up getting killed because uh, Batman's love interests always seem to have a, a very short shelf life. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Uh, and it is a little bit in terms of the theatrical, it is a little uh, sort of tropey. I mean, yeah. as we know, it's been a long time since Batman's had a love interest in the comics. That 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 way lies sort of hope and and positivity. And Batman comics, as we know, for the last twenty years, have to be super dark. So it doesn't get a love interest. But in in the movies, you know, whether it be um, Kim Basinger as uh, Vicky Vale, or uh, I guess in in the third one, it was Doctor Chase Meridian, Nicole Kidman, um, and then. In Batman Begins, it was Katie Holmes as a, a, a childhood friend. And I haven't mm -hmm. heard anything about any sort of love interest in this new movie, but maybe it'll be in, in Alyssa Wong. I mean, well, it's, ca it's, it's Catwoman. It's going to be... It's oh, that's right. It's going to be Catwoman, right. I'm pretty sure, yeah. which is why yeah, I thought right. maybe... I wonder if this character might be a character, a detective in the movie. And I mean, that would be that would have been an intelligent thing to do. Like have a, you know, I think that would be very smart in terms of PR, you know, like, oh, by the way, that Batman the Imposter had the detective that's in the Batman movie, you know, but they're probably... Yeah, they don't... <laughs> you, yeah, you wonder if maybe Matson that wasn't his choice necessarily, or maybe he felt he needed to. You know, it, it's much harder to get traction with a brand new character like an Alyssa Wong, as opposed to when people hear, oh yeah, it's Batman and Catwoman. Obviously they have history, there's chemistry there, there's romance. That's going to draw more people in than oh yeah batman by the way batman's love interest in this new movie is Alyssa wong who yeah <laughs> so maybe this is something that he would have wanted to do uh but couldn't do in the movie and so he, he put it here who knows it's all speculation but anyway let's move on uh next book i'm going to talk about is uh, or we're going to talk about is action comics number 1036 it's finally officially started war world saga part one from writer philip kennedy johnson Daniel Sampier as the artist, Adriana Lucas on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. And there's a backup feature. It's it's part two, but I feel like it's been a couple issues since we had part one. Um, but it, it wasn't very good, to be honest with you. Uh, but it, it stars The Guardian. It's written by Sean Lewis. Sami Basri is the artist. Hi-Fi does the colors. And Dave Sharp does the letters. Um, but this one was, was interesting. You know, we're finally getting to this War World saga that's long been... Um, been teased uh, and we've had prelude to so what did you think of this rocky well i i i'm actually i actually quite enjoyed this i've let me see what i'm trying to there we go oh so i just want to bring it up on the screen here for yep no problem people like i said i'm not quite on my a game yet but here i, here I go okay yeah uh, I, I like this i, I actually this is, look, the fact of the matter is, is that we know that between Grant Morrison's Superman and the Authority and 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 linking that up with uh, fellow Kennedy Johnson's work here on, on in action comics leading into War World, we know that there was some, it, it definitely feels like a continuity glitch. What I found interesting here, though, is it's it's a very vain attempt, but we get some vain attempt at at trying to uh, explain the inconsistencies. Why was Superman with under Grant Morrison's Superman in authority? Why did he have gray hair? And, and then the Superman in action comics have, have, uh, have, have dark hair, you know, I mean, you know, explain all these inconsistencies. And, and as it turns out, 
uh, apparently this is, it's been the authority, it's been the members of the authority, Manchester Black, along with, um, along with the Enchantress that have been sort of feeding the illusion and sort of propping up Superman's use of his powers so that people don't realize that he, how much power he's actually lost. Uh, and it's revealed here that Mongol is in fact aware of it. Other interesting things here is as Superman is planning with the authority to, to, uh, basically, uh, go to War World to rescue the Theologians. The it appears that one of the lead executives or leaders of the United Planets is likely working with Mongol because the minute that uh, you know that the United Planets apparently the upper echelons of the United Planets they are aware that Superman is going to War World because normally it's I like what Philip Kennedy Johnson is doing here because you're seeing it's quite clear that. Uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson is at least acknowledging the United Planets. Now, I know that a lot of people get frustrated. Nobody wants to acknowledge maybe a Bendis plot line, but the United Planets, I mean, the United Planets is a cool concept, so it's good to have them in the uh, the storyline here. You know, why wouldn't they be involved with something as big as that? Well, it appears that this was, uh, Philip, the United Planets is now taken off the table because clearly Mongol is a few steps ahead of everybody, both politically as well. This new Mongol is different than his father. The other, the, the Mongol who was, the Mongol who is, is much more intelligent uh, in terms of being a strategic planner than the Mongol who was. And you, that really comes through here. Uh, this, uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson does a fantastic job of showing the gravitas of the situation, the horror of War World. Uh, and the, I mean, Daniel Samper on the art. Wow. Adriana Lucas on the colors. This just pops off the page. Uh, the, the emotion experienced by Superman as, as they're staring at War World, they're, they're staring at all these satellites that have dead, the dead bodies that Mongol was preparing for Superman to come there with the authority. I mean, he knows. And he, I mean, to, to have, there's this just, it's just horrific scene of, of, uh, bodies being tied to satellites, all to basically to get get Superman's goat to psychologically intimidate him to ultimately, obviously try to break him down before the physical battles even begin. And wow. Um, you know, it's interesting because the authority is a team that are in, are made up of individuals, especially with Midnighter and Apollo that are used to killing at least in past incarnations. These are killers. They're, they're not a, I, I think they're probably more adept at killing than even Superman is because well, Superman doesn't kill. But they're, they basically promised they're not going to kill as part of Superman's team. And there's a scene here where Mongol has lined up all these dead fail oceans, uh, leading into the arena. And it's extremely effective. Uh, Daniel Samper really just shines on the art. This, this really raises the stakes. This feels like it has gravitas. That's what I really like about this. All this, I got to give full props to Philip Kennedy Johnson here because he embraced the continuity established by Bendis, which none of us really like because Bendis was all over the place with continuity. But Philip Kennedy Johnson, he's earned my respect. He earned it a couple of issues ago, quite frankly. But this this is really good. And Daniel Semper showing a tear running down Superman's face as he's staring at the dead. Superman, he, he knows he has to be there. And, you know, the stakes are raised. The Justice League isn't with him. They're off the table. He's got a new team Superman is not really familiar with. He's fighting an enemy that he really has not fought before because he fought the Mongol who was, not the Mongol who is. And, and us readers, it's just exciting. I feel like I don't know where this is going. And, you know, maybe, maybe this is, I, there is a, there is a rumor going around the internet that is Superman going to be killed? 
you know, and then, then, then his young, his son, John Kent might have to take over the mantle. Is John Kent's fear that is from what he heard in the 31st century, his fear that his father won't come back from this. Is that going to become a reality? Will he survive? Uh, he, he'll defeat Mongol undoubtedly, but will he survive this? I love all these questions. I love this team that Mongol has put together. Uh, it's just, this is just a great issue and I just don't want to spoil everything for everybody. So I'll, I'll you know, what do you think? Yeah, I don't have a lot to add uh, to what you said. I, I do agree that it's great. So so my initial you know, impression is, well, it didn't advance the story that much was sort of where I, when I first finished, finished it, right? Like, man, it feels like we've been waiting for this war world storyline to get started forever. And really we have ever, uh, I mean, ever almost, almost a year, nine months, you know, we saw it in future state and, and that, I heard the same rumor about is Superman going to die? Well, we saw Superman still trapped on Warworld with like none of his original costume left practically wearing, you know, very little at all chains and, and some leather straps, this kind of gladiatorial uh, battle gear. Um, and that's far in the future with future state. Obviously we know future state may or may not, not actually come to pass. So will he actually die? I, you know, I hope not. And, and not because I'm a Superman fan, but just because it's kind of been there, done that. And and that that is the reservation I do have with this War World storyline. I've talked at length almost every time we talk about this. I mentioned the Superman Exile storyline from Roger Stern back in the late 80s, early 90s, which I think did this. Pretty much it's the same storyline. Um, and it, it was it was spectacular. So why are we repeating ourselves? But I do agree that there's a lot to like here. And I give all the props in the world to Philip Kennedy Johnson and the creative team for giving us an in-continuity, in-story explanation for why Superman had the gray hair. <laughs> and then, you know, in some books and, and, and others, I won't, I won't pick too many holes in it, but I, I do just wonder, okay, so if it was the Enchantress and Manchester Black that were putting a spell on to not have Superman's gray hair show up and not have him look aged up, then how come in the book that had Manchester Black and Enchantress, which was the Superman and the Authority, why did he have the gray hair in that book? And then the books that didn't have Manchester Black and Enchantress, he didn't. It still doesn't 100% make sense. But I appreciate the effort. And I can sort of you know, overlook that better than them not saying anything at all. At least we, you know, we have an explanation. Um, but yeah, that was my initial impression. Let me, let me kind of say, well, not, nothing really happened in this issue, but I want to pull back on that a little bit because I think what's important. And I think the reason I felt that is because the anticipation of this story has been building for so long yeah. that it's like, man, I'm ready to get into it. I'm ready to find out, okay, what's going to happen. How does this all turn out? Well, we got to get there first, right? And so let's have an issue like this where, like you said, Rocky, Philip Kennedy Johnson's establishing the horror here, the gravitas, the fact that the Mongol who is, is a bigger threat than the Mongol who was, maybe a bigger threat than any previous Mongol that Superman has fought. It's He's leveled up in a way. And so I think it's important to have this sort of uh, context and, and this sort of issue where it kind of sets the stage. and. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't think this is going to be the future state story. It's not going to lead directly into that future state story because when we saw Superman far in the future battling as a gladiator, none of these other heroes, I'll use that term in air quotes, heroes, uh, were there with him, you know? So so hopefully we don't head down that path. And 
Um, the only thing I hope for this, obviously I hope it's entertaining, but I hope it doesn't drag on too long. Um, in this, I want the story to be as long as it needs to be for Philip Kennedy Johnson to tell the story he wants to tell. I don't want the story to, to artificially say it's got to last X number of issues, which may be longer than the story itself would dictate because we want to keep John Kent as Superman back on earth. Like this story needs to be as long as it needs to be. And it doesn't, I don't want to feel like they're stretching it out. It ends up being a bunch of filler. So that, that's my only worry about, well, how come the pacing isn't going a little quicker? Well, we want to make sure we have 24 issues of John Kent as Superman back on earth. Cause that's just what we want. So we can sell more John's, uh, did I say John Stewart? John Kent. Yeah, John Kent. Uh, yeah, John, more Jonathan Kent um, merchandise. You know, more Superboy. Well, John Kent, yeah. Superman, son of Kal-El merchandise or, or what have you. So, But overall, yeah, I felt like this was pretty good. Um, the backup story, like I mentioned, The Guardian and Metropolis with, uh, with Jimmy Olsen, it, it's a throwaway. Yeah. Honestly, this two-part story about kids getting – trapped by some sort of internet you know villain persona this virtual villain it's utterly forgettable doesn't really the only positive i can say for well first of all the art's fantastic from sammy bowsery and the colors are really great but the story is just so utterly forgettable but the one thing i did like about it is it did sort of harken back to the triangle era when there were so many other supporting characters like guardian and jimmy olsen and so Having Jimmy and the Guardian teaming up here did remind me a little bit of that era, and that's that's my favorite era of Superman. So I, I did like that aspect of it, but on its own merits, the story it's just yeah, it feels unnecessary. You know, it's just another one of these. It's a backup that doesn't need to be there, um, so they can make an excuse to charge an extra buck. It, it doesn't need to be there. Take it out and charge less. Yeah. So. No, I, I agree, and I got nothing to add. I, I I didn't enjoy it. I'm not a, I'm not a Guardian fan i'm not a jimmy olsen fan even in the triangle era if i'm blunt i jimmy olsen needs to be revamped unfortunately matt fraction and uh, matt uh, Fra fraction had an opportunity to do that he didn't he doubled down on the silver age nonsense of jimmy olsen so he's as thoroughly uninteresting as he ever was uh, i do think he needs to be redefined jimmy olsen has not been redefined sadly and uh but you know sean lewis is but I believe Sean Lewis has written a good story here for a Guardian and Jimmy Olsen story. So don't get me wrong. And the art, as you said, is great. I mean, I mean, it's good art. I'm just not a fan of the characters per se. And this, you know, I don't think anybody could write a story that would make me interested in the Guardian and Jimmy Olsen. And I, I say that with great respect. And uh, that's just the way it is. And I wish, <laughs> I, w I wish maybe we had somebody on here who was a Guardian or Jimmy Olsen fan. But uh, no, this, uh, this was just, uh, I, I know, such a waste. When we have a War World saga here, which is fantastic. To come off that, this is this backup is a mistake. This is like no one's going to start be interested in the Guardian or Jimmy Olsen because it's this is a backup to this story. I come on. I mean, this is give us more Superman and fighting fighting Mongol man. I mean, let Daniel Sampierre go to town. Yeah, I'm definitely going to miss having Daniel on Action Comics. I think this was his last issue. We know he's oh. off working on something secret uh, that he couldn't tell us exactly what it was. Couldn't even tell us if it was a miniseries when we had him on the show, but looking forward to finding out what it is in, in the new year. So, uh, All right, up next is I Am Batman number three from writer John Ridley. Steven Segovia and Christian Ducey are the artist. Ray Locus on colors. Uh, ALW's Troy Petrie on letters. Uh 
Okay, first of all, let me just say the, the the problems that I have with the I Am Batman, if you've listened to any previous episodes, you know what they are. Uh, it feels a little bit like John Ridley's trying to establish the Fox family as this soap operatic uh, dynasty of, of characters a la Fox's empire and whatnot. Um, and I don't really care for that. I don't care for having it shoved down my throat. I don't know who asked for it. Um, but I, I will say, you know, setting that aside, I'm I'm enjoying where this is going i like john ridley's sense of storytelling uh his sense of characterization the the voice that he's giving to uh jace fox um and i i think if this wasn't tied into batman even the parts i don't like about it like the the the, the fact that i'm being told i'm supposed to care about the fox family i think i might actually be pulled into their drama I mean, it certainly makes sense. John Ridley with his, um, you know, uh, screenwriter for Academy Award winning screenwriter for 12 Years a Slave and whatnot. This is where he he lives, right? This is what he knows, writing stories about relationships and family uh, when it comes to African-American families and and the dynamics of that and and expectations and how that plays out in, in the real world and whatnot. He he knows that he that's you know write what you know he knows that certainly much more than i do as a you know as a white guy um i I think where it falls down for me a little bit is the fact that it is a little bit derivative and i don't want to be one of those people that says well if you want to have a black batman you know you that shouldn't be allowed uh just make a new character if you if you think there needs to be more black characters make new new black characters because i don't think people people wouldn't be paying attention as much if it wasn't for the fact that Jace Fox is calling himself Batman. So I get it. But I also feel like if this wasn't connected to the Batman mythos in any way, that I would find the other aspects of it, the non-Batman aspects of it, more interesting because I would feel like, okay, I'm, I'm have the opportunity to discover something new. I mean, that's still the case, but the problem I have with it is, is like I've said before, it's like, this so this version of Lucius Fox, this characterization of Lucius Fox that we're getting from John Ridley, is a little bit out of uh, character. It's a little bit incongruous with the Lucius Fox that we've ever had before, uh, which is necessary for John Ridley to tell the story he's going to tell. But I just I have a hard time reconciling it in my mind that Lucius Fox wouldn't give the money back to Bruce Wayne. Wouldn't you know what I mean? Like there's there's some <laughs> problems. There's some problems there. Um, because it's not the, the Lucius Fox that I know, as opposed to if these were all new characters, you know, not tied into Batman or whatever, I think I would find it more uh, interesting. Maybe that's not fair for me, but that's that's just how I feel. But I am starting to be able to put more of that aside and just focus on the story that we're getting here. thought the art was fantastic. Um, I, I love the scene where uh, Jace as Batman has to go and, and protect his mother, who we know has it in for, for uh, this new Batman uh, because she's against the, uh, the masks and she buys into what the magistrate is, is, uh, is selling basically no masks, no vigilantism in Gotham and whatnot. Uh, so yeah, I, I did enjoy it pretty well. I thought the, it, it was really fast paced because there was a ton of action. Um, I don't know that the mystery of, you know, what's going on with uh, the seer and, and what's going on with these other characters is is that well done i don't know maybe john ridley hasn't written that much mystery that stuff doesn't it hasn't hooked me yet um but just in terms of of action and the interpersonal drama 
the emotion that we know Jace Fox has to be feeling, the emotion of, of the other members of his family. Uh, I think that is all resonating, um, particularly with, with Jace's feelings. We get that interaction early on with his father where we know that Jace has gone to work for his dad in order to take advantage of the, the resources there. It helps him be Batman. He says himself he's appropriating equipment to become his version of Batman. Right. And that's his mission. That's his goal. That's his priority. And so when he misses deadlines or misses project meetings or whatnot, and his dad's screaming at him, uh, you know, and he's just sitting there taking it and you, you, you feel bad for him, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's, that, that stuff's working for me. And I'm trying to put aside the other part where this version of Lucius Fox isn't really the most, uh, uh, it's not the one that's in my head basically. So, uh, anyway, what, what did you think Rocky? Is this well, working for you at all? Uh, well, I, I got some criticism of it. It's funny when you mentioned, uh, uh, Lucius Fox criticizing his son Jace for for not showing up and not being responsible as sort of like the the head of the company. I wonder how much did, did Lucius Fox ever give Bruce Wayne shit for not showing up for work? I mean, Bruce Wayne basically <laughs> let Lucius Fox run it, and there and I find it ironic that Lucius Fox, you know, father is always harder on the son, right? You know, you're my son, yeah, you're well, supposed to do I this. Mean, te- technically, Bruce Wayne was Lucius's boss so maybe he well, felt like <laughs> but i'm just saying he, he let lucius run everything and i just find it kind of funny that uh uh you know i get it but it's it's i just find it i obviously jace fox if he had any idea he, he's going to realize it you know if, if you're going to run a company it's much better to own it as opposed to have your father telling you telling you how to run it so bruce wayne uh-huh. had it easy so jace fox is starting to realize that he didn't you know bruce you know, Bruce Wayne doesn't realize how good he has it. He can literally do whatever he wants when you're the boss. But <laughs> per Jace Fox, actually, he actually has to do really has to do two jobs. You know, but uh, in any, I, I didn't, I didn't mind this. I, I do think that if if you're looking at this story in conjunction with uh, with with the larger Batman Fear State and Future State, Fear State, Future State, you know, and all the different villains that are all over the Bat Universe right now, it can be a little bit much. Uh, there's, there's, I feel that because we review all the DC comics in the Batman universe, I feel like there's a redundancy here. We got Oracle, anti-Oracle. Now we, we got Seer. Then we got, we got Scarecrow and we got fear gas. And then we get different types of fear gas. And we get, there's all kinds, everything is just all over the place. And here we have the Seer who's manipulated the masses to work for him. And there's this kid, there's this kid who's been corrupted by conspiracy theories uh, who's been part of this moral authority? Who uh, who killed the character Anarchy? So the villain Ana- or the Batman's old villain Anarchy was killed by this kid named Morris Caulfield. And what John Ridley tries to do here, and you alluded to it, is that uh, Jace Jace's Jace Fox's mother, Tanya Fox, is a lawyer, and she's you know she's like a pro bono lawyer. She's gonna you know take it upon herself to go represent this kid Morris Caulfield. So. It felt a little bit forced, you know, trying to prop her up as this strong, you know, great, you know, do-gooder, trying to protect the, you know, will even protect, you know, murderers. And, of course, just she gets in a dispute with the cops that are trying to protect her. And then the precinct gets attacked while they're there and they're trying to break in. And Jace Fox finds out his mother's in, the, in there. And so he's got to he's got to run to the scene. And like you said, it was there's a lot of moving parts here, but it was action-packed. John Ridley has improved over the last, I would say, over the last six, seven months. This this has a better flow than in past issues, I find. there's It's more kinetic. There's more energy. It moves forward fast. 
And again, I, I think where I think where a lot of unfortunately, because we already have a Batman that's dealing with this, you know, even in this story where this character King, you know, is calling out Batman. Well, when Batman shows up, well, actually, that's not really Batman, is it? I mean, I mean, it really isn't. I mean, I mean, no one seems to be talking about the fact that there's two Batman in Gotham City. No one's. This is, people seem to be ignoring that. It's just, I guess Batman is black if you're reading I Am Batman, and Batman is white if you're reading the other one. Or in this case, he's wearing a mask. And so it's, you know, like I said, it's, it's, it's a little bit odd. I'd almost like them to have two universes, you know, like they started off with, with Miles Morales and Peter Parker, put him in their own universe. But then Marvel even screwed that up by merging them, in my view. But that's a different topic. But I don't mind this. Story. Yeah, you're right. I, yeah. yeah. I mean, and we, we talked about that before about how, when we got the future state Batman with Jace Fox, how it seemed like the way it was written, he, those were his, you know, first excursions as Batman way in the future. And yet now this is back in present day. Yeah. You can't, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And the continuity is is wonky. It's just, it's just a wonky continuity, but you know, again, in fairness, if, if you're, if you're just reading, I am Batman and you know, you just, you know, and you just love Jace Fox as a character, it's actually better if you don't read the larger Batman universe because you're, you're, you might actually enjoy this story that much more because there is some degree of confusion if you're, if we're like you and I trying to, trying to make it all work in our heads and we create this immaculate, sophisticated head cannon and you and I are, you know, I'm, I'm taking notes here trying to make sense of all this. You know, sometimes I just got to say, you know what? Maybe it just doesn't make sense and I got to sit back, relax, sit my crown and just, Enjoy the story for what it is and, and stop trying to fit it into the larger DCU because it just gives me a headache. <laughs> yeah, stop trying to make it make sense, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, up next we have Black Manta, uh, Assassin of the Sea, Part 3. Chuck Brown is the writer. Matthew Dow Smith is the artist. Uh, Marisa Louise on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, what would you think of this, Rocky, this, uh, this third issue out of six, halfway through here? I'm sorry, I just got to... Okay, I just got to bring it up here. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm I'm actually getting a little bit frustrated with this series. I was a little bit... Um, I, I found that um, artistically this... The, artistically, I really thought this suffered. I, I don't mind the cover. You know, no mercy for you, Black Manta. I don't even know who the character is up front. The scene doesn't even take place... I think in the comic itself, but it, this is the prelude to Aquaman, which is interesting. I didn't, I didn't know. I, I haven't read Future Solicits by by choice because I find that they ruin the stories for me. Uh, apparently, we have a series coming up called Aquaman. Okay, it's a pre. This series, this issue three of six, is a prelude to Aquaman. Okay, I I found the the art here by Delandro. Uh, I really didn't like it. I I'm, I'm not a big well, fan. Well, this of... actually wasn't Delandro this time. Well, actually, what... you know what? It's it says Delandro on the color on the on cover, the cover rather. Okay. But inside it says Matthew Dow Smith. But I think you're right. I think this is. I think that's a mistake. I think this is Delandro, because I was thinking as I was reading the credits that this doesn't look anything like Matthew Dow Smith's art. So I think yeah. you're right. It is Valentine Delandro. Uh, yeah. Well. V- yeah, it, it does. It definitely either that or Matthew Dow Smith is 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 is, is very successfully copying the art. Yeah, and yeah. and my advice to Matthew Dow Smith is don't copy Delandro's art if, <laughs> if that's the case yeah. because it doesn't work and it, it really doesn't work here. The art actually took me out of the story. I actually found this to be 
uh, a little bit confusing artistically. There, there's the main villain here. The, the there's Black Manta, who we know is a villain, and then there's this other villain who hates Black Manta. It's unclear as to why, but um, it's. Uh, I like what they're what they're trying to do here. I think that they're trying to establish some new importance for Black Manta by establishing hit, that he has a history with Atlantis in the Atlantean past. And in this issue, uh, flowing from last issue, uh, him and, uh, and this, his gallows partner are using the gentleman's ghost who apparently has the power to help them travel into the past to go back into the past of Atlantis' past to try to get to the, the secrets of this or- ornaculum metal or oraculum, if I said that correctly. And so there's, it's interesting here. So he's, they're they're go, they're traveling back to Atlantis. Meanwhile, there's this other woman who 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 arose from Doom's doorway on on Paradise Island on Themyscira, uh, and is greeted by Queen Nubia, and she's going to be traveling across the sea. Why I'm not really sure. Um, I, I'm not really sure the the art on some of these pages. I hate to say it, but you know I'm showing some of the art now. I, on the art on some of these pages is. I mean, I, 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 I want to be diplomatic, but it's just not very good. Like this is like, this is like some of these pages, like it's not even, it's not only is the art bad in some of these, but the, but there's no background. I mean, there's literally no backgrounds. This, this really seemed like it was phoned in because you had a deadline to meet and you got to gut it. And look, and I don't want to, you know, look, the, it served the story insofar as I, I, I got the gist of what was going on, but this was... This was not something that I was inclined to read twice, even though I did wasn't entirely clear what was going on. I didn't want to read it twice, and I didn't. And, and I don't really know exactly what's going on here. I feel like I'm a little bit confused. I don't know what the point of having Themyscira or Paradise Island on this was. I don't know who this black woman is who entered from Doom's doorway, and and now she got counsel from Queen Nubia. Well, what did they talk about? You know, uh. At one point, Queen Nubia says to this 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 woman, "We don't even know her name. We, were we given this woman's name with white black woman with white hair? Do we know I her can't. name? No, I, I don't think no. We're not given her name. I don't even know who she is. And then and then out of the blue, Queen Nubia says, "Your essences must have bonded in the underworld. He is your or, or this creature is her Orisha. What's an Orisha? Like explain this to us. It's just like last." Last issue in in the second issue of Black Manta, we got all these references to names of of past slave colonies and and, and black slave history and it, you know again potentially interesting stuff. I'm a history guy. I, I love history, so he kind of wet my appetite a bit. Uh, uh, Chuck Brown, the writer, but I he he never you know just just throwing out a bunch of words and throwing out a bunch of fancy stuff and not even giving us names and and then in can it's one thing if the writing assumes too much on the part of the reader and i believe he's assumed too much but the artistically it's 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 not up to task so the the art sometimes art can save a bad story or vice versa both this was a failure on both parts and i hate to say that but that's just the way i feel um i like some of the dialogue between black manta and this this gallus character i do really like her she's sort of like his sober sec- uh, black she's like black manta's sober second thought and she's, I think she's good for him. Uh, I do think that there, I, I might be wrong, but 
I'm not the only one who has suggested that maybe Bachman is going to become more of an anti-hero, perhaps more on the, closer to the hero side. I think they're definitely trying to move Bachman to into a, a higher amount of significance here. Uh, because if I'm, if I'm not to be a cynical bastard, but who asked for a Black Manta series, really? <laughs> I mean, I think they want to prop him up. And quite frankly, with, um, with, uh, Jackson Hyde getting a lot of attention on Aquaman the Macabre becoming, I think it's only appropriate that Black Manta maybe be, you know, become more interesting as well. So, uh, I think that there's a good story here w waiting to be told. It's just not being told. <laughs> If that makes any sense, but you know, I'll, I'll I'll leave it at that. I'm I'm in for the I'm for the long haul here because I actually do think that that this is going to have some significance moving forward. But I just don't know what it is, and I really wish writer Chuck Brown would sort of like he's gotta he's gotta focus on his clarity a little bit more because it, there's just too many questions that I have, and it's a t and I'm asking the type of questions that sh that should be provided in this story. Uh, I, I still have a lot of questions about who this villain is. Why am I supposed to care? And they, I, you know, pacing is off, structure's off. And, you know, I could, I'll just stop talking now and let you, uh, agree with me or disagree with me. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I think it's, it's really a, it's really a question of pacing and, and probably a question of how much real estate is there. You know, uh, I agree with you. It seems like they're trying to take Black Manta in an anti-hero direction, which I, really don't agree with at all. I think Black Mana is one of the best just out and out bad guys. Like you never question his motivation. He's a selfish guy. He cares about himself and that's it. Um, and trying to give him anything redeeming at all, I think is a mistake, but I don't make those decisions. So um, I, I agree with you. It does feel like they're trying to make him more relevant in terms of tying his ancestors and, and himself to Atlantis in some way, which again, like, like who's asking, who's asking for that? Like I, I, he's, he doesn't need to have more backstory. He doesn't need to have, I mean, you're bringing him, you're giving him something in common with Aquaman now so that they can maybe have common ground. They don't need common ground. He is, he's the <laughs> anti Aquaman. He's Aquaman's, you know, number one foe, it could be argued. I mean, maybe Ocean Master, yeah. the other argument you could make, but no, Black Manta is just a bad guy. So, I, yeah, I don't know that this is necessary. And, and then, okay, if you're going to tie his past into Atlantis, that brings in magic. Maybe the fact that it's magic is there. Atlantis is an ancient civilization. So are the Amazons. So now you bring in Themyscira. It feels messy. It feels convoluted. It feels unnecessary. Doesn't mean it wouldn't make for a good story. It very well might, but... Does Chuck Brown, is six issues enough for Chuck Brown to tell the story he wants to tell? I, I would say maybe it would be if the art was helping out at all, but instead of helping, I mean, the art can help. The art can neither help nor hurt, or the art can hurt. My argument would be this artwork hurts. Well, uh, not only is it not making the story more clear, it's making the story less clear because it's so muddy. And it's hard to tell what's going on at times. Well, not so, only that, yeah. what's what's the name? Who's the name of the villain? Like, do you do know the name of the villain here? I, well, I don't know. The if thing I... is, when the villain appears in that last panel, it almost looks like a version of of Black Manta, which is also confusing. But uh, previously, we were told that um, the Devil Ray, as he's called, well, okay. uh, you know, <laughs> right. had, had been. Um, 
you know, they wondered, is, is Devil Ray and Black Manta the same person? Are they not? There's there's questions about that as well. Why is Devil Ray, you know, attacking? What does he want? So, yeah, a lot of different threads here. Maybe it'll all come together in the end. Um, but even if it does, this story, if it turns out where I would recommend it to somebody, I'm going to be recommending it purely on the basis of the narrative and not on the basis of the art. Because you're right, the art just doesn't help at all. And... And the color, it, the colors are very drab as well, which also doesn't help. But I don't fault the colors for that. I don't think you could color this type of art in any other way. If you if you colored this art with bright colors, it would look even worse. It really would. So yeah, yeah it's. I mean, I, I we talked about the Valentine Delandro art when we first saw it on on Future State, the Mister Miracle story, that it, it wasn't working and. I, I don't know. Apparently, he he can meet a deadline. I, I gotta think that's why he's getting this uh, getting this work from DC. But man, if you want Black Manta to you know people to pick it up and and enjoy it and and talk about it, you've got to put a a more well known artist on there that that yeah. has the chops. So, it, it, it's not doing against, the, it's not doing the character justice. Yeah, exactly. And nothing against Valentine Delandro. I think for crime noir or horror, this type of of you know, thick line and, and impressionistic art could work, but it doesn't work for superhero comics. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Up next is, uh, is future state Gotham number seven written by Joshua Williamson and Dennis Culver art is by Giannis Milo Giannis lettered by Troy Petrie. There's no colors as we've said many times. Um, and there's also a backup and I'm going to sound like a little bit of a broken record here. <laughs> uh, so this is a backup. It's called A Night in the Life of a Bat in Gotham. It's written by Joshua Williamson. Art is by Riley Rossmo. Letters by Darren Bennett. This backup is from Batman Black and White, like a lot of the bat, uh, backups have been in this future state Gotham because it's a black and white story, I guess. Why not put in black and white? So I still don't understand why it's black and white, why DC's putting out a black and white comic when they're still charging the same amount. Um, but the just like... Previously, Rocky and I have talked about this previously with the Jorge Jimenez backup that was from Batman Black and White. But this is even more egregious. You know, we're, this book is coming out the second week of November. This backup came out at the end of August. Like two months ago, basically. Yeah. I mean, it, this Batman Black and White story just came out in Batman Black and White number four. And you're reprinting it already and charging people extra? Not okay, DC. Not okay. Uh, that being said, like we've said previously, uh, the Milo Giannis art does look better in black and white. Maybe that's why they're doing it. I don't necessarily have a problem with them doing doing it that way. If they think it looks better, not colored, I agree. But you got to charge less if not coloring it, in my mind. Uh, as far as the story goes, you know, despite it starting off a little shaky and tying into Future State Gotham, which... I don't really care for this ended up being a decent enough story. Um, I like what it said about, uh, about red hood and his, his path toward redemption. Again, the continuity gets kind of wonky. We've seen red hood in the current continuity, give up his guns. Um, and yet here he, you know, that's not mentioned or talked about. So, you know, again, you got to kind of take it with a, a grain of salt, but I liked the uh, the characterization that uh, Culver and Williamson gave to uh, Jason Todd, I, I liked his interactions with the rest of the Bat family. It was somewhat of a, a redemption. They're they're 
sort of meeting on common ground. Uh, so yeah, I thought it was uh, okay. Would I would I recommend this? No, I still wouldn't recommend it. A lot of it has to do with the art and the value, actually, um, more so even than the art, because I, I think that Milo Giannis has improved his storytelling, has improved his line work. You can see growth over these seven issues um, and growth from the, the backups that he did in the, in some of the future state Batman stuff. Uh, so he's gotten better, uh, which is what you want to see from an artist um, to the point where I'd say I almost enjoy the art, uh, even though it is just in, in black and white. So uh, no reason he can't be a, a very serviceable, if not good, uh, comic book artist. So, you know, I, and I hope that's the case for him. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, being that it's future state, it's still not a, sort of a, a universe or a timeline or time period or era that needs to exist in DC comics, in my opinion. And, and now apparently we're going to get the future state version of hush. But again, who's asking for this? What future state didn't work DC. I don't know. Maybe you didn't get the message. It yeah. really didn't work. Can you just let it die by stop, by stopping this series? Stop giving us stories that are in a, a time period that that nobody really enjoyed and, and frankly didn't work very well so i don't know did you feel differently rocky uh no i didn't uh well i i, I agree with you that milo Giannis. i what's the, how do how do i say his name again milo yeah milo Giannis. i think is milo Giannis. His, his art absolutely has improved and that's to, to his credit and you know what I, I i have to in fairness say that you know sort of like a, a manga look or feel is not my cup of tea uh, but honestly, I don't mind being wrong if it's for the betterment of the comic book industry. If I end up being in the minority because I like my comic books colored, so be it. I want comic books to thrive. So that's fine. I can be an outlier. So, you know, this is, this art's improved and it's, and it's better. I, I'd be really curious to know where, you know, comparatively speaking, where do other readers, how other readers rate this? What are the sales for Gotham Future State? This is not my cup of tea. This 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 storyline it had its moments and it's some some cool moments. Uh, I think story wise, Williamson and Culver not not doing a bad job. I guess started off terrible. I thought. Uh, I still feel that this is the 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 process of putting lipstick on the pig, so to speak, uh, dragging the story out this long, and and for what? I mean, ultimately, just yet another version of a peacekeeper in a future state that's not going to happen. Um. Really editorially, I mean, I, I was really hoping, as, just as a general sentiment, uh, Jason, I don't know how you feel about this, but, you know, I started off and I think both of you and I, both of us were, were optimistic about, you know, maybe editorially the future state that, you know, all the writers can kind of work together and this future state won't be a complete write off and that all these seemingly divergent storylines, it, it, it seemed almost to have some degree of planning when, when we read the initial future state issues and, but the way this has come together, it's actually the opposite. It's gone farther apart between the, the Titans and the Suicide Squad and the Batman and the Future States here. It hasn't gelled very, as well as I had hoped that it would. And it's, um, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. I think that there was a larger, you know, cohesive, larger story and narrative at play here. But it doesn't really work together as a whole very well, all these issues. Of course, most people aren't reading all the comics like we are. But because I am, I, I was hoping that would come together a little bit better. This is one where you absolutely can miss. You can absolutely skip this and miss absolutely nothing because this has no consequence, no gravitas, no bearing. This is a future that's not going to happen. 
And at least I hope, I, I, I don't want this series to continue. I'm not actually buying the physical copy of this and I just never will. I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the art. But I would be really curious to know what the sales on this are because uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm in the minority. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I would never buy this either, a physical copy. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the, giving me a backup that I just, <laughs> that I just yeah. read. That's uh, two months ago. That's inexcusable. You're yeah. you're 100 right on that. That's just absolutely inexcusable. The backup. But. So, anyway, let's move on. Uh, I'll let Rocky talk about uh, go first and talk about the next book. It's a debut, and of course, because it's DC, it's more Batman. But this time, it's not Batman and Robin, but Robin and Batman, Chapter One, written by Jeff Lemire, who is uh, a creator who uh, I'm a big fan of. So I have high hopes. For that I will enjoy this. And I thought, did think the first issue was pretty, pretty solid. The art and colors are by Dustin Wynn, who is a longtime collaborator of Jeff Lemire. They did the, uh, they have an image series. Um, I think it was Descender and then Ascender. Uh, letters are by Steve Wands. So basically this is a, a story of, of Batman and Robin, but it's kind of the story of, of Dick Grayson becoming Robin in his own words, rather than seeing it through, Batman's eyes or Bruce Wayne's perspective, which is how it's, it's uh, told traditionally. So what did you think of this debut Rocky? Uh, I actually, I thought this was, I thought this was good. I thought it was good. Uh, it never felt really, he, I didn't find that Jeff Lemire's breaking any new ground here. Honestly, it never, it hasn't really stood out to me, but I, I really can't identify anything demonstrably wrong or, or irritating in it. I, I really, I like the art, uh, Dustin Nugent's art. I love the art and colors. Uh, of course, I always like his style. Uh, it's, there's something about it. It works in the telling of this story. I really like it. I, I love the layouts. I love the, the, I love the focus on Robin. I thought the narrative was, I, I thought the narrative was great. And, you know, this is really the, the story of, le it leads up to, the, the adventures and the, the personal angst of a young Dick Grayson as he's striving to impress Batman and become partner and, and get, and get his own outfit. His, 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 he's got to name himself and he's got to create his own outfit and, and the struggle he went through to, to do that and, and, and the, the struggle of, of trying to impress, uh, impress Batman. And, and of course, Batman always being just absolutely Hard on Robin, a young Dick. Well, pardon me, hard on Dick Grayson because this is a young Dick Grayson. He's not officially a Robin yet. That's that's the point of this story. That's what kind of makes it interesting. Is this is this is what Dick Grayson had to go through to become that you know Robin, and it's really a wonderful story that where you, you can see the frustration that Batman has with Dick Grayson, but you can also sympathize with Dick Grayson that. Because Dick Grayson, he is very good. He's very effective against these these bad guys. He took them all down himself. Of course, he defied Batman by doing so. Of course, Dick Grayson always pushes the envelope, and of course, that pisses off uh, Batman because he's he's sort of a you know he's sort of like the, the stern father. You do what I tell you, so because you got to stay alive. And and then Batman being held accountable by by Alfred. These are all you, you know for longtime readers. This might be a little bit tropey, but I gotta say that uh, Jeff Lemire, he understands the dynamic. That the dynamic between Alfred and, and and Batman is is spot on. The way Alfred cares for Dick Grayson is spot on. 
this feels familiar to me. This feels like I'm, I'm reading the Batman and the Robin, i.e. Dick Grayson that I know and love. And this is really good. There's my, my favorite scene, uh, is when they're sitting in, the, there's a full page spread. It's four panels long and from top to bottom and it's pretty much all silence and they're driving the Batmobile. Batman is pissed off at Robin. And there's complete silence. You can tell Robin knows, or you can tell Dick Grayson knows he's got to keep his mouth shut. And he says, but I, and Batman says, don't. You know, it's just like, it, it, it almost, it reads exactly like a parent and a son having, father and a son having a, having a bout, you know, having a moment of, of they're both angry and upset with each other. It's very well done. You get that father-son dynamic. You get that, that mentor-mentee dynamic. And you get that struggle and you get that desire to want to, to, to impress the desire to be accepted. And, uh, it, it really works well in the angst of a young Dick Grayson and, and venting his frustration out on, on Batman. And, and then that, and I don't want to, I'm not going to, I don't want to ruin it, but the, the manner that Jeff, the manner and the way that Jeff Lemire scripts the, the story that ends in Robin, young Dick Grayson getting his Robin outfit. I really love how he how he did that, uh, because it really shows. Because we not because this issue starts off with Batman, of course, being the a hole that he often is, <laughs> as that as that domineering father figure who who's a control freak. But it ends with the with the with the more with the more loving side of Batman that he rarely shows. And it, I thought it I thought it worked. It worked for me. And this is I think people are going to really enjoy this issue. And I, I got a, is this a one shot or is this a series? No, it's three issues. I oh. think. Yeah. Cause three, this feels yeah. like a one, this feels like a done in one story. This feels like a nice self-contained story to me, you know? So I, I thought it was well done. what do you think? Yeah. I mean, there's a few threads that are going to continue obviously with the way uh, there's some friction there with, with Dick and Bruce at the end. And then also there's what appears to be and, and I, I, I want to say that, this isn't the first time that I've seen this. There's a little bit of history here, uh, but we get a, a little clue that perhaps uh, Killer Croc, um, Waylon was oh, yeah. part of the same circus as um, right, yeah, as, as uh, the Flying Graysons were. So that's going to probably be explored as well. And and I loved how uh, Lemire threw that in at the end because it, it called back to a scene in the middle of the issue where when Dick Grayson is out in his bright Robin costume for the first time, um, Killer Croc sees him and he, he's like, where did you get that costume? They, that that makes sense. You know, if, if he had a relationship with the Graysons before, why is he, uh, you know, that's why you would care so much about the costume. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to like here. For, first of all, I'll say, so I have, I, I have an interesting sort of feeling about Dustin Wynn's art. Um, so he does watercolor, which I don't particularly care for watercolor style. It's just a little messy for my taste. The, the art's not as clean, and anybody who's listened to the podcast a long time knows I like really clean traditional comic book art. But what I do like about Dustin Wynn's art is that the tone of it, even though it's not necessarily as clean as I would like, the tone of the artwork is always spot on with the story that he's he's trying to tell. So it works with Ascender, Descender, and it works here uh, again, working with Jeff Lemire in this Robin Batman story. Uh, so I, I think on that level, very, very good. Um, as far as the dynamic between Bruce and Dick, yeah, it's, it's not what we necessarily know 
as their relationship is now, because this is the relationship as it very first started. And yeah, when Batman is, is out there watching uh, Dick Grayson for the first time out in kind of a live environment, and he feels that, uh, that Dick Grayson wasn't taking a big enough overview and endangered himself, and <laughs> he gets mad at him. And uh, yeah, just that growl, you can hear you can hear it in your head as you're reading it. Get in the damn car. <laughs> you know, he's just not happy with what uh, Dick Grayson did. So I, I love that aspect of it. And in terms of, of this being an early story for, for Dick Grayson, what's missing, and, and one of the things I love about Dick Grayson so much as a character, where he's at now, is the belief he has in himself. The belief that not only is he going to succeed and overcome any obstacles, but the belief that he has in himself that the choices he's making, he's doing the right thing. Like everybody knows that Dick Grayson is one of the most moral, you know, upstanding characters in the DC universe. He, he, he very much is that, that beacon, right? Like if Wally West is embodies the hope of the DC universe then Dick Grayson embodies the selflessness, the heroism of the DC yeah. universe. And he doesn't have that here. He's just starting out. He's just a kid. He doesn't necessarily have that confidence in himself and as we're privy to his thoughts the way Lear structures this where we're reading kind of what uh, Dick Grayson is writing in his diary or his journal that comes across that he is unsure uh, he's unsure of of you know at one point when Batman tells him okay you're, it's too soon I don't feel like you did a good job when you're out there today it's it's too soon and Dick is wondering does that really is that really what he believes and what he wants me to do? Or is it a test? Is he testing me to see if I'll, you know, push the boundaries, if, if I'll defy him because what I'm, I, because I can make a difference and that sort of thing. So there, that confidence isn't there. And I like that because it, it very much shows us that is, this is a, a Dick Grayson who's, uh, who's just starting out. Uh, I also agree with you at, at the end when we see a little bit more of the compassionate side of, of Bruce Wayne. Um, I think that worked very well. And the other thing that worked very well you know, it's the, the whole argument that, you know, if Bruce Wayne really wanted to do what he was doing with his mission, how could he possibly um, justify putting kids in danger or whatever? And there's a scene with Alfred, you know, when they're talking about what a sort of what a dick Batman's being about not wanting uh, Dick Grayson to go out there. Yep. Um, and I, I, you know, as a, a retcon story. Uh, or a story that's telling maybe some stuff that we've never seen before in terms of the Batman mythos. I think that that works. I don't think 20 years ago, it would have even been a question because that really hadn't come up. The fact that Batman's endangering children oh, yeah. when you stop and think about it. Um, <laughs> but it, it, you know, in this context, it makes a lot of sense uh, where, you know, Batman says, I, I'm not going to bring home a, you know, a dead child. Uh, you know, I'm just not, if he's, if I think he's not ready, he won't go out there. So uh, it may not make the most sense, uh, you know, when you stop and think about it, you don't want to bring home a dead child. You just, you'd never let him go out there, no matter how ready he thinks he is or how ready you think he is. You just don't put him in that line of fire, but then it wouldn't be a comic book. Uh, but, it, but I thought that that was an interesting aspect to add in for, for Jeff Lemire. So yeah, I thought it, I thought it worked very well. I just, I, I we would be remiss if we didn't compliment the uh, color scheme on the lettering. Uh, with uh, bright red uh, uh, narration boxes, uh, word word balloons, uh, with uh, 
with a bright yellow uh, for the for the words uh, amongst a red background. Uh, you definitely it it enhances the feeling that these this is Dick Grayson's Robin's thoughts, and it it works really well. I, I thought it I, so compliments to the letterer as well, which I never I don't think I even made a mental note of who the letterer was, but it was well done. Yeah, I I agree, and I'm glad you pointed that out because it does it, it very much separates you know who's whose thoughts there. It's Steve Wands that does yeah. does the letters. Good job. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, Superman versus Lobo, book two, from writers Tim Seeley and Sarah Beatty. Uh, Mirka Andolfo does the art. Arif Pranto on colors and Fabio Amelia on letters. I don't. I think I mentioned this on social media, but I'll, I'll give a shout out here on the podcast. Uh, big props to Tim Seeley. Who I don't know if he actually listened to our review or not, but I, I know Tim and he's been on the show. You know, I can't even remember how many three or four times at this point. Mm. Um, he sent me a signed copy of uh, a Superman versus Lobo number one. So, oh, did he? <laughs> yeah, it showed up in my mailbox. I was very surprised, uh, and I'm glad he did because even though I, I sort of had mixed feelings and I'm not the biggest Lobo fan, uh, I really, really enjoyed this second issue much, much more so than I did the first one. I mean, the first one was was kind of a funny tongue-in-cheek. It felt very much like a Lobo story. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you're not familiar, if you didn't read the first one, it, it is Black Label, so it's out of continuity. Uh, but basically, Lobo's off on, on vacation at some intergalactic spa, and this giant amorphous type of um, uh, alien shows up, basically, and, and attacks, and he ends up um, kind of saving the day, and then they end up going... To, to earth so the then the this alien says to lobo I, you know i owe you thanks for helping me out uh because apparently he he's from another reality and he came into our reality he was all confused and that's what caused him to attack so he owes lobo a favor lobo decides he wants to go to earth and take out superman because he doesn't like superman basically and meanwhile lex luther has launched his own version of twitter and it's all this information misinformation on social media and whatnot and so eventually lobo and superman team up and they save this alien and help him sort of shrink back down to a more normal size and and have more control and not be sort of out of control in this reality that he's not used to and as a thanks this villain says oh you or this alien says oh you guys are both the last survivors of your you know doomed and and destroyed planets as a gift to you because this alien has the ability to manipulate reality as a gift as a thank you to you i'm going to restore your destroyed planets and and put you back there so you can, <clears throat> excuse me, so you can be among your, your loved ones that you lost. But he screws up and he sends Lobo to, as the last son of Krypton, sends Lobo to Krypton, and he sends Superman Kal-El to Caesarea. So it doesn't exactly work out for the best, and that's where this one uh, this one picks up. And so there's a lot of in-jokes. It's, it's really pretty funny. Uh, the alien doesn't quite understand Twitter and he sends messages back to Batman and Lois Lane from birds that are literally tweeting out his message. Um, and he, he, at the end of it, he says, uh, that's it. That's the tweet, which many people put on Twitter. And it's sort of a, a trope at this point. So I, I loved that. I, there were just so many little moments and little lines in here that, that had me chuckling. And that's how, uh, that's how a Lobo Superman book should be. So the other thing that I really enjoy about it with all the different hijinks and whatnot that go on with sort of a, a stranger in a strange land or fish out of water story with them being swapped or freaky Friday is another um, good analogy that I've heard some people talking about on, 
on Twitter uh, about this book. Um, each of the, and I, th I think this is a three issue mini. Uh, and I, although it is telling, you know, a story that's continuing from the first issue to the second, you very much can read them as a standalone. And even though <laughs> this sort of fish out of the water, Freaky Friday part of the story comes to a conclusion here, we are going to get a part three that still has these same characters. It still has Lobo. It still has um, Superman. It still has Neiman, who's that sort of big amorphous blob of an alien, uh, pink alien. Um, and Lobo and, and Superman are going to have to go take out the Neiman or Newman uh, revenge squad, uh, which, you know, that's kind of a play on the, the Superman revenge squad that we've seen uh, in the past. So, mm. you know, despite me not being that, uh, that big of a Lobo fan, I am a fan of, of Tim Seeley. I think this is the first comic that Sarah Beattie's ever written. Well, she's, she's worked with Tim Seeley on the, the money shot, series over at uh vault i believe but this is her first dc work and i've never read anything from her before this um but this is working for me uh yeah. it's just it's just funny you know yeah. uh, i think i think with um the characterization that uh that celia and Beatty give to superman sort of tempers the over the top of lobo which is usually why i don't read lobo comics i just i can only take him in small doses so here the fact that he's balanced out by superman uh, it works for me. And yeah, I, I really en uh, am enjoying this. Uh, I will say the Mirko and Dofo art, and we've talked about this before, it's not quite as sort of clean and stylized as her art usually is. So I'm not sure why that is. Um, I mean, still great storyteller. She's a great visual storyteller, always has been. Uh, but I just, I don't quite enjoy her art here uh, as much as I, I normally do. And I, again, I'm not sure uh, why that is, but overall it, it works because, you know, it's still her layouts and, and the storytelling is, is still really good. Again, the scripting and, and the, the in jokes are hilarious. The colors by Arif Prianto are, are very bright and vibrant, which kind of suits a, uh, sort of a humor book like this. Uh, yeah. And, and this is working now. I know you're a much bigger Lobo fan than me, Rocky. So, uh, is this working for you as well? It, it is. And, and, uh, you hit the nail on the head. This is funnier than the first issue. I thought the first issue was humorous. Uh, it didn't really blow me away, but it was it was entertaining. This was actually funny. I had some laugh out loud moments, uh, which surprises me. Uh, honestly, I've I've always found Tim uh, Seeley to be a writer who he's always been uh, what I would describe as serviceable. Like he's always it's never been bad, but he's never really impressed the hell out of me. It's always been he's a, he's a serviceable writer, but this is one where actually. I'm actually surprised that this this is actually laugh out loud funny. There are some moments here. I mean, my uh, I was I found the page where, where Superman. I mean, <laughs> the one Doctor Flex. She's in love. She's falling in love with Lobo because he's so hot. And Superman's saying, "You know, are you serious? I hate Lobo, and I've spent time with Lex Luthor." <laughs> I mean, I mean, no one's. I mean, even Darkseid's got more of a moral code than Lobo. He says. And she goes, yeah, I know, but I find him hot. But and then Superman, but the casual sexism, I know, and the murder, I know, and you know, genocide, I know. <laughs> it's it's actually funny. The dialogue works really well. That that, and and the funny thing is, there's a lot of dialogue in this issue, a lot. Yep. And sometimes, often, a lot of dialogue doesn't work. You know, uh, this this actually works. And this is, you know, usually if you have too much dialogue, it. It's 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 too bloated and it doesn't serve the story. This actually is it's funny. It actually serves the the comedy that that plays itself out. And um 
Uh, I mean, I mean, even this dialogue, some, some sexy Kryptonian in front of Lobo saying, when the calluses on our fists were thick and the fabric around our asses was thin. And I then Lobo that. says, yeah, maybe I ought to rethink my view of Krypton. <laughs> I mean, that's a, I mean, this is good. This is good. This is, this is laugh out loud stuff here that, you know, so, cause normally when you read comics, often I find myself just going, eh, eh, you know, and maybe a little smirk on my face, but it's not often that I will actually openly laugh or my wife will look over and glance at me because I'm laughing. Cause usually I'm doing it under my breath, but you know, kudos to see you here. This is, this was genuinely entertaining. For some reason, I found Andolfo's art actually better this issue than the first issue. I actually, it worked better for me. I thought these women, maybe her art's growing on me, but they were sexy. I mean, this, they, they were, uh, you know, sexy women. I love the provocative nature of this. I like how, uh, Superman is even maybe, you know, he's not made fun of, but he's, he's, he's kind of like, he's not so super here. You know, he sort of put it in his place. And it. I actually, if, you, if you're a Lobo fan, you're going to absolutely love this. You know, for a completely, you know, if you want Lobo to get his comeuppance, then you want to watch, then you want to read Justice League Last Ride number seven that we're going to be reviewing this week. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's something else entirely. But, uh, you know, so it's a, it's a good week to be a Lobo fan, regardless of what, if you like Lobo, it's a good week for it to be a Lobo fan. And if you don't like Lobo, it's a good week to be a Lobo fan with what, what DC's got coming out. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't want to spoil, we don't want to spoil all the funny moments, but I'll, yeah. I'll just, the only other thing that I'll say about this is if you are a fan of that classic line from Superman 2, Neil before Zod, there's a great, <laughs> moment. there's a great, there's a great moment in this issue where, yeah. Yeah, you'll see that line in a whole new light. <laughs> so, uh, all right, we're gonna move on. Uh, and well, Rocky's grabbing the uh, the p or the, uh, the the image for it. Uh, we're gonna talk about Joker next. It's, it's Joker number nine. Uh, so James Tynion the fourth is the writer. There is a uh, a fill-in artist. It's Stefano Raphael, uh, but his style is very reminiscent of uh, of Guillaume March. So I didn't even notice. I, I thought I was like, ah, Guillaume, the, the art is not is not quite as clean as Guillaume's art normally is. So I, I did look at the art just to see, and sure enough, it's a it's a different artist, but the style is very similar. Uh, Romulo Fajardo Jr. does the colors, and Tom Napolitano on on letters. And then there is the the continuation of the punchline backup. We're up to chapter nine now. It's written by Sam Johns and James Tynan. Art is by Rossi Campi. Colors by Marisa Louise. So uh, give us your thoughts on uh, the main story here. Uh, Rocky with uh, with Jim Gordon and Vengeance. Well, uh, first I'm going to reiterate, and I I, I start I think I've started off the last three the last three issues of Joker that we reviewed. I've started off uh, the same, and I'm going to reiterate again. I don't care that the Joker is not the main star in this series. I, I th- this is just a really good story. Quite frankly, I mean, hey, if you're going to deceive me and uh, drag me into a Joker story, and Joker's not in it as much as he normally is, but the story's this good. I got no problem with it at all. Uh, I actually, the irony is that I actually find Joker more interesting because of this, because it's, uh, as we said before, it's how other characters react to the Joker. And it's, it's what the Joker brings out in these characters that for all intents and purposes, of course, this is the Joker story. Vengeance hates the Joker. Commissioner Gordon has been hired to take out the Joker, but it's the character arcs that those two characters go through that define the central narrative here. Uh, the Samson family wants to kill the Joker. Everybody wants to kill the Joker. Everybody's looking for the Joker. Meanwhile, the Joker is 
is part of, as uh, as communicated with the head of the network. And the network is this organization that essentially, it's a sophisticated organization, sort of hides criminals around the world at various resorts. But they also have, do some, they have something and they're engaged in something far more sinister. And that involves uh, actually selling, as crazy as it sounds, <laughs> human body parts for food, for selling human meat and the, and of course this was sort of hinted at because we knew the Samson family and the Samson family just to be clear the Samson family the head of the Samson family one of the uh, sons of the Samson's family the Billy Samson was killed by the Joker it is believed in a day Arkham Arkham day uh, which sort of set off the whole fear state over in uh, in the pages of Batman. And so now everybody, the Samson family wants Joker dead. The vengeance, or vengeance, the daughter of Bane wants Bat, uh, the Joker dead because everyone's blaming the Joker for everything. The go- Commissioner Gordon's been hired and he's going to be paid $25 million to kill the Joker. And yet, so, so I always, I find it absolutely astonishing that so many people are just taken aback by this, 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 this where's the Joker? Like, are you kidding? Come on. <laughs> Now, granted, he's not in every panel, and that's really what they mean. But, uh, but, but I will say that when the Joker does show up, and uh, there's a great scene in here where Commissioner Gordon and Vengeance show up and find, and they they confront Joker, who's sitting by beside one of the head head uh, head executives of the network. And when the Joker says on that page, "Jimbo, you made it." It's almost like the Joker. He's staring at the reader with his one red eye, one red eyeball and, and green eyeball. And finally, the reader's, there's the Joker. Now we're going to have this confrontation. And right away, vengeance, daughter of Bane, attacks the Joker, only to be taken out right away by some code word or some hidden, I think, code word that this network executive had that somehow they can control vengeance because vengeance was essentially... Uh, there's this sophisticated cloning technology where the network not only hides and protects criminals, but will replace them in jail. So if you ever you think uh, where a criminal dies in prison, it's it's not really that criminal who died, but a, an exact cloned duplicate of the criminal. And they have this sophisticated network that they protect criminals. And and I th- I find that absolutely fascinating. And boy, doesn't it make sense that the Joker would 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 know all about that and be affiliated with a network like that? It just makes sense. The Joker is a- always seems to be ahead of everyone else and uh I just I really liked how this I I was really fascinated with this. I thought it was a little bit over the top that really there's people all over the world, there's apparently sophisticated there's restaurants you can go to where you can where it's there's a secret menu where you can eat human flesh. I think that's a little bit over the top, but, but hey, you know, hey, what else do you do? You know, if you're a multi-billionaire, you know, they, you can't all be like Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, you know, some people are pedophiles and some people eat human flesh, apparently, in the DC universe. I don't know, but it's, it's, uh, there's definitely a dark aspect to this. And in that respect, that's right. That's right in keeping with the Joker. And even there's this creepy executive. He's, it's just, Everything about this is creepy. And the perfect artist for that, I mean, Gillen March here, I mean, just, it's just, it's it's really good. Um, it, it's Gillen March, this issue, isn't it? Is it still no, him? Stefano, or is it... I was talking about that. Was, yeah, Stefano. Stefano. Uh, Stefano Raphael. Okay, uh, well, I, stand, I stand corrected. But yeah, it, but, yeah, but very much his art looks almost exactly like. Yeah. Uh, 
like Guillaume March. I, I questioned myself because when I looked at it, I, I, I did think, well, maybe it's not Guillaume March, but, uh, but in any event, it, it works. And, uh, it, you know, I just really like this. I like this story. I love the fact that they tried cloning the Joker, but they, you can't clone the Joker because the Joker's DNA has been all screwed up by the process and accident that turned his face white. But I like the fact that the network tried to clone the Joker, but just didn't work. But they, they success, they were successful in cloning Bane. That's how they ended up with vengeance. And it's just, this is, this is very, very interesting. Now, people who choose to ignore this great story, and I'm being critical here of the people I don't like this story because I, lo- I love this story. I think this is great. And people are going to say, well, this is, this is about the network. This is about the origin of vengeance. This is about Commissioner Gordon's angst that we've, we've heard this story before. I don't think we have really. I, I, I don't care. I'm, I'm fascinated with all these new characters we've met. I'm fascinated with this network. I love this Samson family. They're sick and demented. I love the fact that at the end here, the Samson family has finally incapacitated the Joker. So they're going to take Joker back and they're, they're, they're you know, the, you know, the Samson family is probably, they're probably going to want to eat the Joker literally. Yeah, I mean, they how demented slow, can you get? Yeah. Yeah. They said they were <laughs> wanted to slow roast him. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, I don't know. Like I don't, man, I, I'm loving this. Like this is, this, this to me is sheer entertainment. I mean, Oh my God. And Joe, and here, Commissioner Gordon, he's in the middle of this absolute cluster F U C K. Wow. And, you know, Commissioner Gordon, he's being, he's being, you know, you know, he's being attacked by, by the, this network guy and, and, and then with the Joker and, and he's deciding whether or not to call Oracle because he could take out, he has an opportunity to take out the Joker, but you know, should he do it? He should probably call Oracle because he's, he, this is, it comes to a head now. Cause remember he, you know, is commissioner Gordon going to abandon his morals, uh, his moral code that's his moral code that's been developed for his entire career. He's lost so much because of the Joker. He finally has a chance to take him out. Is he going to take that opportunity or is he going to call for help for for oracle or batman and at the end here uh commissioner gordon is you know is he's seemingly taken out he seems to be stabbed and and he's dying so is he gonna you know is he gonna he tries to call for help for oracle perhaps he waited too long what's gonna happen uh we got the joker being captured by the samson family now i mean everything's coming to a head and Man, I I like this. I like this. Commissioner Gordon seems he seems to be off the table. The Joker's taken down, and we're at issue nine. And this is is this twelve issues or ten issues? I don't know that they said. Um, oh, it's an I ongoing, isn't it? I think it's yeah, an ongoing. Yeah, but but I mean, I was gonna actually mention that because so the the thing is, yes, it's called the Joker, and we've talked at length about how it's not really a Joker. Joker's not the main character of this, and he never was meant to be. And if you're um, a subscriber to James Tynan's Substack and you've read his his um, his newsletters where he's talked about his, the, kind of the evolution and um, the way his run on the Batman played out, and he was talking about when he was pitching things, and yeah, he very much was pitching a Joker tie a title a, called Joker that didn't have the Joker in it that was about a young college age. Uh, guy who was so fascinated with serial killers and specifically the Joker that ends up becoming a serial killer himself. So yes, it was called the Joker, but this, the title was more about the effect that Joker has on someone else, the, the effect that he has on 
DC Universe at large. Obviously, this story is not that story, but it's in the same vein in terms of even though this title is called The Joker, it's more about the fallout, the consequences. What what does the fact that the Joker exists and what does the fact that the Joker chooses to do these horrible, demented things, what does that do to other characters in the DC Universe? That's what this is. And though the reason I bring it back around to how long this is going to last is we know James Tynan is leaving DC. Uh, at least he's leaving Batman. He no longer is going to be exclusive at DC. Still has his na- nice house on the lake series that's going to, it's on hiatus right now, but it's going to continue in the new year. Uh, his Batman series is almost done. It'll be done with the end of Fear State. And he also is finishing up his Joker run. I hope that they end the series when James Tynan is done. And if they want to tell, or they want to have a Joker story, this sales were great on this. We want to have a Joker title that stars the Joker. But they started over with a new number one. So this can stand on its own as a Joker title that where the Joker is not the main character. I just don't have confidence that somebody else can come in and give it the same sort of tone and feel that Tynan has, has given it. Um, and the worst thing would be if Tynan stories 12 issues or 14 issues or whatever, to have mm-hmm. it start with issue 15 and now the Joker is the main character because that's not the point of this series. Mm-hmm. So I hope if they do decide they want a Joker title that they, they start over. And I won't read a, a – you know, and I, I debated on reading this. Um but obviously we get the press copy. So, you know, why not? Um, plus that Mark Brooks Joker or uh, Harley uh, punchline car Joker punchline car cover was amazing for the first issue. And I'm obviously I'm glad I'm reading it because it's not a Joker story. It's a story. It's really a Jim Gordon story more than anything else. And I'm, and I'm loving it. And as far as the, the whole idea or whole reveal that this guy was creating brain what did he say? Did he call them? I think he called them brain dead human cadavers that were basically just cattle to be sold. Yeah, that was a little cringeworthy. And for a moment, I had forgotten about the whole cannibalism aspect with the, the Sawyer family and that, that brought it back with yeah. a big sledgehammer <laughs> to my brain. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. A little bit of James Tynan's affinity for horror uh, coming through there. And I, I definitely could do without it, but it is an aspect of the story that does add some consequences. Um, so yeah, uh, as far as, you know, the events of the issue, I don't have much more to add than what Rocky, uh, said. There's a lot going on, a lot of action and James Gordon is, is thrown in the middle, in the middle of this cluster F. Um, and even he doesn't know how to, to feel about it. And, uh, you know, this, the issue started out, you know, after he teamed up sort of with vengeance last issue and they're on a Jeep ride heading to where they think the Joker is. And Jim Gordon is is telling his story, telling his history with the Joker to vengeance. And as he's saying it, as he's hearing it out loud, it's reinforcing, yes, that he really does want the Joker to die. And he realizes what he's doing uh, because he doesn't feel like he could necessarily um, pull the trigger. And that, that was talked about in the first couple of issues. You know, he's hired to take out the Joker. Could he really do it? That's not who he is. Um, but as he's telling the story, realizing he really does want the Joker dead, as he's telling recounting these events and the way the Joker's negatively affected his life and his family. He says, it's funny when it all began, I really didn't think I could go through with this, this being killing the Joker, but I can see what I'm doing. You know, he can see what he's doing right now in agreeing to team up with vengeance and then recounting his Joker experiences with vengeance. He says, I'm loading a gun 
whose trigger I will not have to pull. And if that's not the single greatest line that Tynan has written in this, uh, in this story so far, I don't know yeah. what is. I absolutely loved that. thought that was so great. And, yeah. and you can understand because we get a recap ourselves of yeah. all the horror that the Joker has caused the Gordon families from killing joke to what happened to uh, Jim Gordon's second wife, Sarah Essen in, in uh, during the cataclysm era of, of Gotham. Um, and then the most recent uh, Joker war stuff with the uh, year of the villain and death and in the family kind of, and, and yeah, and death in the family, like all you can understand why Gordon would want the Joker dead. But you also, it, it, that line makes so much sense because it totally jives with who we know Jim Gordon to be as an upstanding guy who didn't give into the corruption of the GCPD. Yes. He wants the Joker dead. No, he, he can't pull the trigger himself. And he's even struggling with this, knowing that what he's doing is he's loading a gun whose trigger he won't have to pull. I just thought that line was absolutely fantastic. My, and uh, by far- it, uh, there, there is one, it does end with a major tease because the network apparently it's hinted at uh, from a page the final page with Oracle, it shows a picture of Talon and a DNA match with James Gordon Jr. So yep. uh, it might be that James, uh, uh, Jim Gordon's son is still alive, or at least a cloned version of him is hinted. Well, the that talents, might... remember that the talents are res- are brought back from the dead. Well, f- yeah, well, fair enough. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. So <laughs> is he part of the network or just the talents? Or I, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, either way, it's it's fascinating. It's interesting, and it, and it adds. It's this is. There's no question that this is more of a Jim Gordon story told through the the the. I guess the the almost like the metaphor of the Joker. The Joker is, the, the but the Joker is everywhere. Is permeating everywhere here, and you know, it, it the the presence of the Joker is controlling the flow of this narrative. If if uh, and I don't know. I, I'm I'm just loving this I'm, for. For a comic book that's called The Joker that everybody's complaining about doesn't have the Joker in it, it, it sure feels like the Joker's in this story quite a bit in my mind. But hey, maybe I'm an outlier. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, again, this is fantastic. I can't recommend it high, uh, highly enough. So, all right, moving on next, we have Teen Titans United number three. This is oh, from Ryder. We're not going to talk about, sorry, we're not going to talk about the oh, backup. Oh, the, back, the backup. The, the punchline right. backup, um, chapter nine. The, yeah, the, yeah, we are. Yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot to say about it. Um, <laughs> It never ends. This yeah, story so, is so, never ending. I can't so, believe so it. I, yeah, so much that I wanted to just skip over. Almost <laughs> the whole story takes place in the office of uh, one of the uh, attorneys who's going to be uh, prosecuting um, Punchline. We know she's in jail. We know it's the whole, you know, she's trying to play the victim with what she did with Joker War or whatever. It didn't move the, the story along uh, a huge amount, but some of the pieces are starting to come together. But yeah, just. Um, I guess because it does feel like it's sort of moving to the final stage of the story that I, I did kind of enjoy it more because it felt like we were in, stuck in the prison forever. Now we're talking about the trial finally starting. So, mm-hmm. I, so I don't know. I, I, I sort of liked it better than some of the previous iterations, but yeah, it's still my biggest complaint about the story is it, it, this thing is moving at a snail's pace, <laughs> but I, I thought the art and, you know, the dialogue and, and, other than the pacing, technically it's a well put together comic, but again, it's about a, a character I don't really care about, Punchline, and I'm more than done with the whole idea of people doing horrific things in real life and getting away with it by 
hiring spin doctors basically and say, no, that's not what really happened. Uh, too much of that in the real world. I don't need it in my comics as well. So. Yeah, I, I, I agree. This story just never really worked from the beginning. I, I, I actually like the character of Punchline. I thought she had a lot of potential and I, I just think it's, uh, she's been approached in the wrong way. I don't like what Tinian has done with her. And I find myself constantly playing script doctor because boy, I would not have punchline is just not as not the interesting character. She could be, uh, the way that Sam Johns and James tiny and the fourth have scripted this. We're at chapter nine of this. This is awful. This is just plain awful. I mean, in a nutshell, I mean the motor, the characters, the actions, the story, it makes so little sense. Just plain stupidity from beginning to end. I mean, apparently punchlines master plan was to, you know, punchlines in prison and the person who's the, I mean, just, just the nonsense of it. I mean, how stupid the police are. The the character that's going to be going to be testifying against Punchline is in the same prison as Punchline and nobody thinks of removing her. So then Punchline actually had the master plan of believing that Bluebird would try to rescue the person in, in prison. And then when Bluebird goes in, then then Punchline, you know, they had their altercation. Bluebird escapes with the the key witness that will be, that will now testify against Punchline. Meanwhile, Punchline, uh, you know, they they can't now. Leslie Tompkins uh, doesn't, you know, the, you got to be careful because if if the media finds out that that Bluebird was in prison and and then that 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 could be used as as a way to get Punchline off to, to get her her, you know, any possibility of conviction it's going to be eliminated because it might look like they were trying to set her up and anyways it was just just a awful story this is just terrible it just didn't work it was uh there was so many things that were wrong with it and punchline is just a dumb uninteresting character at this point and i it's so sad because i i think that had she been done right she could have really been a reflection of the darker side of social media. That's what, how I viewed the character. She should be the darker side of social media and very manipulative of her own right and have her own agency in that regard. But now she's just a stupid brunette, purple-haired pawn of the Joker. And it's just it's just plain stupid. And with storylines like this, it's not doing it any favors. Yeah, well, the other part, aspect of this is we know she's not going to be found guilty. We, yeah. we know she's going to be out there, yeah. you know, because she's a DC villain. So... Yeah. Why are you dragging this out? Yeah. yeah, this is not this was not handled well at all. And and way, way too long. Nine yeah. chapters. Come on. Are you I, kidding? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised to see it last the length of whatever the, oh. the joke the whole Joker regular story run is. So uh, yeah. anyway, let's move on. Uh, like I said, Titans United number three from writer Kevin Scott. Jose Luis handles the pencils. Jonas Trindad on inks, Rex Locust on colors. Uh, the art's fantastic, like it has been throughout. Uh, we've talked before about the Jose Luis uh, Trinidad Rex Locus trio here. Um, just fantastic dynamic art, really fine line work, great transitions from panel to panel, interesting layouts. The colors are very bright, which gives it this traditional sort of classic DC Comics feel. And the, while the characterization of the, the Titans here, because this is very much the the Titans group, not necessarily the, the Teen Titans. Um, and, and we've talked before about how that might be sort of trying to capitalize on the popularity of the, the Titans uh, streaming show that comes on um, HBO Max, I guess now. Uh, and, and and all that works for me very, very well. You know, just because the relationship between Jason Todd and, and Nightwing or Jason Todd and and, uh, and Superboy Connell isn't necessarily what it is in, in other Comics, I'm okay with that because in my mind, this sort of lives in its own little pocket 
uh, of the DC universe. So um, with, with the constraints of continuity kind of thrown to the side, this is just a fun classic DC story with a lot of action and, and interesting characters. I, the last person I expected to show up to be sort of the big bad that we saw at the end of uh, issue two was Blackfire, yeah. Starfire's sister. I love and, Blackfire. Uh, she's hot and she's sexy and she's kind of a bitch. She's perfect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's a great, she's a great villain. Yeah. Um, and the other, uh, the other person here, Elaine Marshall Morton, Vic, this professional assassin, Lady Vic. Uh, she's yeah. A, yeah, she's a great villain as well. And so uh, for me, this is working, the whole idea of tying into to Cadmus, which is uh, another reference to the uh, Triangle Era of, of Superman. Uh, you know, Kevin Scott clearly is a, is a DC fan, and he's pulling from, you know, the history of the Teen Titans with Blackfire being the, the villain here and, and with Cadmus references and whatnot. Uh, and beautiful art from Jose Luis. I expect, especially like the way he, he draws Donna Troy. Uh, yeah, this just this just works for me. It's just a fun, a fun comic where you know you don't have to worry about anything that's going on in the DC universe. You don't have to know anything about Fear State or Future State or Infinite yeah. Frontier or whatever. You can just read this. It stands on its own, and it's just a, a whole heck of a lot of fun. So uh, I'm really enjoying it. I I Would couldn't. I, yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I this was. And it it actually it, it's it's sad to say, but you know, look, I I'm generally enjoying the DC universe, but I have to say I'm kind of glad that this Titans issue just seems divorced from the rest of the DCU right now, because the rest of the DCU does feel a little bit convoluted, and you know, I this is sort of like just brainless fun in a good way with with a really good story. Sex, like I love the art; it's bright, it's traditional DC. Women are sexy. The, the 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 fight scenes are awesome. It's action packed, and and you got. I mean, I mean, the good lord. I don't think Blackfire's been drawn this sexy in a lot. I mean, this is this is a gorgeous villain. I mean, good lord. I mean, this is uh this is good stuff. I'm definitely. You know, <laughs> I this is just this is just a lot of fun. I I, I don't. I actually, you know, trying to fit this into the continuity of the rest of the. Don't even bother. It's like no. Because it is, it it has to be. I think I'm pretty sure it's divorced. I but it doesn't really matter. This is just a lot of fun. There's a great extended sequence here where where Superboy is being attacked by you know sort of manipulated in uh, by by Blackfire and her sort of like mechanical beast. Uh, and meanwhile, Donner Troy and Raven are taken and. <laughs> Red Hood are taking on Lady Vic, and there's just the, the juxtaposition between those two fight scenes, uh, where and there where where ultimately at the end, I mean, quite frankly, story wise, not a lot happens. Actually, not a lot happens. We don't get a lot of story progression from the end of the Flash issue to the end of this issue. It's just fun. It's just fun. It's it's these are glorified action packed sequences with actually fun dialogue, good dialogue. And I mean, with, with Jason Todd being pulled by a, by an, a plane that Donna Troy actually loses her magic, her, her own lasso to actually pull the, the, this jetliner back to save Jason Todd. This is really, this was a creative use of storytelling. I mean, I always, we don't always talk often talk about it, but choreographing a fight scene, scripting a fight scene as a writer, I think is, it can be very challenging, I think, for writers because I wouldn't want to do it because, I mean, I'm not much of a fighter and I guess, you know, how do you do that? I mean, but I like the creativity here that comes into play uh, on, on multiple fronts. There's a lot of moving parts in this issue. 
It works very well. The art is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. This is the Teen Titans that I know and love. And for those that like younger Teen Titans, you got Tim Sheridan over with Teen Titans Academy. It's not really my cup of tea, but that's because I'm older school and I like these older established characters. And boy, it's great to see Blackfire and Donner Troy, like you said. Yeah, I agree. 100%. So... Uh, all right. Well, you already mentioned this next book we're going to talk about. So while you pull up the, the picture on it, uh, I'll give the credits. Okay. It's the final issue. Uh, I'm sad to see that it's over because we really enjoyed it. Uh, it's Justice League Last Ride number seven. Uh, Chip Zdarsky is the writer. Miguel Mendoca, in my mind, has given us the best art of his career. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, Enrica Angiolini does the colors and world design on letters. And yeah, this was just wow. It was so it was so spectacular. Um, you know, I, I mentioned at the top that um, I, I don't want to say I was disappointed with the way that it, that ended, but I, I thought it was interesting that the choices that they, that they made and not necessarily in the story beats, but sort of in the, in the way the story was, was structured, I thought, but uh, I'll let you go first and give us your thoughts and then I'll, I'll, and I almost feel bad because I enjoyed it so much that I'm going to nitpick it uh, a little bit. But there's just one moment that it kind of surprised me the way they handled it. But uh, anyway, what did you think of the, the this conclusion? Uh, it. I, I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. You're right that you I can you can nitpick the conclusion here, but there's there's some elements that I like. I uh, I actually like that Martian Manhunter came back alive again that was good he came back we that was last issue even but i like how they used him here he ends up being like the essence of the new oa and oa is revitalized i like these scenes between hal jordan refusing to give up and ultimately taking out dark side instead of just letting dark side go hal jordan could not just let it go and leave it to the man with the greatest willpower in the universe to take out dark side in a spectacular fashion with a bunch of bombs i mean it was just it was great the scene between wonder woman and lobo I mean, my God, uh, the minute, you know, the, the last issue, uh, there was a great scene last issue where Batman ha actually paid off Lobo and, and basically paid off Lobo with uh, sort of galactic credits to basically hire Lobo to help them defeat the forces of Darkseid that were against them and the cyborg Superman, etc. And at the end of that, they need to take Lobo off the field and, and the way Wonder Woman does it with that sword in the same way she took out Granny Goodness in the first issue. And, uh, you know, involving the, you know, the separating of one's head from one's neck. And of course he's, he's a Zarnian, so he's not, it doesn't kill Lobo, but fantastic scenes, uh, that there's a great, there are great moments here that are a callback to the, to the first issue, particularly between Batman and Superman, where, you know, the, the, the way that, uh, Chip Sardaski, the writer, uh, utilizes the dialogue and, and these are characters that know each other. Batman, uh, Batman throwing himself to take out Cyborg Superman, knowing he's going to be easily thrown aside. But he, of course, why would Batman be so stupid while he puts a bomb on Cyborg Superman's chest and he, and he just looks at Superman and says, heat vision and Superman right away sees it was all tactical. Batman, everything Batman does is for a reason. No matter how, no matter how suicidal it may look, he's always 10 steps ahead of every person he, villain he fights against and every ally he fights with. And that's the beauty of Batman. Sardaski shows that off here to great effect. Batman uh, ends up, ironically enough, getting stabbed with a kryptonite knife. <laughs> and, uh, 
uh, there's a great line here uh, where Superman says, Bruce, you idiot. And uh, Batman says to him, I, I, you know, I can't let you get yourself killed. You'd be furious with me, <laughs> which is a wonderful callback to the fact that these are two superheroes that have been at each other's throats, angst ridden over the, their perceived failure in, in Martian Manhunter dying and both of them feeling a sense of failure and Batman feeling that he failed Superman by by not being able to prevent Martian Manhunter's death. Well, there's some redemption there in that, just in that line of dialogue, it said so much, so much, because it revealed that, you know, because Batman's not a touchy-feely kind of guy. <laughs> you always got to read in between the lines with Batman, and that was a great way for Sadarsky to do that. Works so well. Uh, Darkseid looks so domineering and 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 cruel and 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 uh, epically boisterous and 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 evil uh with uh, I I never thought of Darkseid being cool but it, uh, with with a, a powered up by the I guess Green Lantern Owen energy but it really works here great to see John John Stewart uh playing a role working with uh Martian Manhunter they fight together uh great scene with uh, Wonder Woman again in Lobo um humor action fun um as far as nitpicking, I mean, I mean, I, I guess, I don't know. I, I guess I could take, you know, I mean, I, I, I suppose I, I like, I like the choreography. I, I, I suppose I question whether or not, I, I actually don't know, for example, if Darkseid is dead or not at the end of this. I don't know. Was, did Hal Jordan kill Darkseid or was he just rendered unconscious? I'm not really sure, but, uh, I, it's not really important that I know, uh, I thought this was satisfying all around. Artistically, this was a big win for me. I love this. I love the fact that this entire series is artistically consistent. It had, to my knowledge, I'm pretty sure the art seemed the same to me every issue. Maybe you can correct me, but I think it's the same artist every issue, yeah. which is nice because it feels artistically consistent. This is going to be a beautiful full, a full trade paperback. I think this, I hope this sells well because in my view, it deserves it. This is a great full story with fantastic art it captures the essence of the characters and you don't need to be beholden to existing uh dc continuity it's really a, a, a narrative in and of itself uh that works well on its own and uh again i said earlier about if you're a lobo fan if, if you like the humorous side of lobo and you love the character you got the black label series uh, superman and lobo and if you if you really don't like lobo like one if, if you feel like lobo like Wonder Woman feels like Lobo, you're really going to enjoy this issue. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'll stop talking now, man. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And you do raise an interesting point uh, about selling well in trade. And I hope it sells as well. I mean, Justice League traditional seven members, usually Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Martian Manhunter. He's the one that everybody forgets was a founding member. Hal Jordan, Green Lantern and Aquaman. So we still have seven here, but instead of Aquaman, we get Jon Stewart, which makes a lot of yeah. sense uh, in terms of this being a story that t takes place out in space. There is no Aquaman. Uh, the other aspect is that obviously Darkseid takes over Hal Jordan as, as we, you know, it was a big sort of twist and, and turn. Um, but yeah, it, it ends up just, just working on a very visceral level to be sort of a, just a, a quintessential Justice League story despite maybe the lineup not exactly being what you think. I mean, there's no cyborg. He sort of replaced Martian Manhunter in the new 52 as, as a founding member that always, nah, I always didn't really like that to me. Cyborg should be over there with the Titans. Not that he can't be a member, but 
shouldn't be a founding member of, of the Justice League. But but you're right. The story worked on so many levels, especially because there was so much dysfunction. And you see the team through kind of adversity come back together as you as you always knew they would. Of course, helped by the fact that even though Martian Manhunter's physical body was destroyed, he was trapped within, um, you know, kind of the center of Apocalypse. And once Darkseid unleashes his uh, own willpower to sort of repower uh, Apocalypse, Martian Manhunter is able to use part of that. And the way he merges with Jon Stewart is is very effective. Um, I agree with you about the scene with Wonder Woman cutting off Lobo's head was fantastic. And a little little moment of humor, humor there where... Uh, Lobo says, you know how long it takes him to grow my body back? So that, that leads me to wonder why people don't do that more often to Lobo. You know what? I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to cut your head off and at least he'll take you out, you know, for a few weeks or however long it takes you to, to grow a new body. So uh, that worked as well. So, yeah, I, I thought it was fantastic. The art, you know, I've mentioned it time and time again, how fantastic it was. Um, it's interesting. I, I sort of expected a more, I don't want to say depressing ending but this ends in in such a way where it can be open to so much more justice league universal is the title of the issue and we see that justice league has now established a base on the moon and bruce wayne has said you know we're, we're no we need to be we need to address needs beyond earth we're no longer american or international we're justice league universal you know becoming a, a bigger player in in the galaxy and the universe to stop menaces before they start that works for me if Zdarsky was to do a, a series like that, I would definitely be along for the ride. But by ending it that way and leaving it more open, it did surprise me a little bit. Like I almost felt like we were leading up to somebody having to make a sacrifice, whether that be Superman or Batman or whoever. Um, and we're going to end up with more dead Justice Leaguers rather than less because we actually get the return of Martian Manhunter. Uh, he continues to uh, exist, even though he's bonded to the to new Oa, it's called, or or what used to be Apocalypse. So at least he's he's there, and um, the Green Lantern Corps is going to be rebuilt, and uh, and Martian Manor will be the, the first guardian and, and part of the council that decides on what the role of, of the Green Lanterns are. So so again, very much ends on a on a hopeful note with uh, a bright future. And based on sort of the angst and emotion of the way the series started, I didn't necessarily think it was going to end that way, but I'm fine with that. I'm I'm totally fine with the way it ended. And uh, again, if it if Zdarsky is going to revisit this, I would, I would be totally on board. Uh, the one thing that, that surprised me, the one little nitpick I have is and you kind of mentioned it. We don't know if was, is dark side killed here, which I, I don't necessarily, I mean, typically I don't like my heroes to, to kill, but you could certainly understand <laughs> yeah. Al Jordan doing this, right? Like yeah. if he was possessed by dark side for years, as, as we're told and, and subjected to that, evil you could totally understand him not wanting dark side to escape and you could understand him kind of cutting loose like this and no one's going to care right like in terms of superman killing somebody in in you know man of steel or uh, wonder woman snapping maxwell lord's neck and people want to create controversy there nobody's going to care that that uh how jordan apparently killed dark side although maybe that's why zadarski <laughs> chose not to actually show it argument could be made well he's just knocked out just unconscious he's in prison somewhere but my biggest i don't want to say complaint but just maybe surprise is the fact that this wasn't depicted in a different way like it's these boom nukes that dark side was going to actually send to earth and have explode that hal jordan was able to capture 
And then as Darkseid tries to leave to fight another day, uh, Hal goes, no bleeping chance. And he throws all these nukes at Darkseid and it explodes. And it's not even a full page splash. Like, you know, we're supposed to think Darkseid was killed. I, I mean, you would almost expect a double page splash. And it was almost, it was almost like, yeah, we took out, uh, dark side but just based on the panel size it was almost a little anticlimactic did you get that yeah. feeling at all it, yeah i mean it it actually kind of surprised me and and if i might be misremembering this but i thought that at the the i thought in the first issue of this series sardaski mentioned that the green lanterns were were powerless against yellow or i maybe i'm confusing my series but i thought he he sort of mixed up his his green lantern or a little bit but because here uh, in any event, I, I note that the, all these all these boom tube bombs, they're yellow, but obviously Hal Jordan had no problem throwing, using his ring to throw them all on Darkseid. I I don't know how Darkseid could sur- could survive that, although I really I, I realize he's an Omega level threat. But um, in any event, uh, I don't really care. I'm kind of glad that I, I get I think the, the beauty of this story is that readers, I think we can determine we can decide that however you like. I like to think Hal Jordan has, I think Hal Jordan, I like to think that Hal Jordan killed Darkseid myself. Because, I mean, the look of determination on Hal Jordan's face is just like, you know, grim and gritty. Because, But the thing is, I will admit that if Darkseid was just incapacitated, I can't see Hal Jordan just letting Darkseid float in the dead of space. Like, why did yeah. he just, do you know what I mean? That doesn't really make sense. Uh, so I'm assuming he was likely vaporized or... Maybe when these boom tomb bombs explode, they sent Darkseid into another multiverse or, or something like that. But I, I don't know. But it's uh, either way, it's yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I mean we're nitpicking, and you know the, yeah. now there is only one Darkseid supposedly for all the omniverse. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. But I agree, and you know I know that DC got rid of because I thought the same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, this is a you know a different. It's not main continuity or whatever. I, I, we know that when Jeff Johns with the whole parallax thing removed the. The weakness against yellow, so I yeah. guess I assume that the same thing here. But yeah, yeah. It, but but all in all, a fantastic series. And like I said, if if Zdarsky does a, a Justice League Universal story, I'll I'll be there for sure. So yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Pennyworth number four from writer Scott Brian Wilson. Juan Gideon is the artist. John Rausch on colors, and AW's DC Hopkins on letters. Uh, again, this is you know much like the Pennyworth TV series that used to come on Epics, and I think now has moved over to HBO Max. It just got renewed for a third season. It's the story of Alfred Pennyworth when he was in MI5, uh, kind of a, a spy, as it were. Um, there's not a whole heck of a lot that happens in this issue. It, it's more a, a transitional issue. We see Pennyworth escape. We know he got betrayed by his partner, who is also the love of his life, uh, Shirley, who he grew up with. Um, in terms of his family worked for Shirley's family. Shirley's family was very wealthy. His dad was a butler to, to Shirley's father. He grew up in the servants' quarters there. They've known each other their whole lives. And, you know, he feels betrayed. And and so, you know, he's trying to escape. He's in this Arctic desolate area where, where this, this weapons facility is falling down around his ears and he's got to find a way to escape and then try to survive in this very bleak, hostile environment. All the while trying to reconcile this betrayal and he, he's trying to convince himself that maybe she's playing the long game and uh, you know, she's still undercover and whatnot. And, and then he sort of realizes that, that that's not the case. And then there's a couple of scenes of how this, everything that's going on in the past is tied into something that's happening with Alfred in current time, because he and his uh, 
old mate from the the spy game uh, are captured and being held prisoner, but we don't get to see any faces or know who uh, has captured him or or why. So he's thinking back and and remembering all these things that he's gone through while he's trying to to build himself an igloo after he escaped this weapons facility to try to uh, to build some shelter so he can survive. But it very much ends on a cliffhanger. He's not able to to complete that. And like I said, a little bit of a down issue. Doesn't really advance the story much. It's more about giving context to the betrayal he felt and giving us a little bit more scenes of in current time uh, where it appears that he's sort of outclassed by the guy that has um, has captured him because he did manage to escape from the chair that he was tied to. Uh, but when his captor uh, enters the room he's in and Alfred attacks, he gets knocked on his butt pretty, pretty easily. So again, it's, it's very much a James Bond feel, you know, sort of that whole cold war spy, cold war spy story. Uh, and I, I am enjoying it. It adds context uh, and, um, and background to who Alfred Pennyworth is as, as a character. And even though he doesn't, even though he's dead right now in current DC continuity and present time, you know, he's going to come back. He's always a character that I've, I've very much enjoyed. And when you give him this context and see, how formidable um, a person that he was, you know, in terms of this guy's not just a butler. He's done so much in his life, special forces, espionage yeah. and whatnot. And it makes him the kind of the perfect partner for, for Bruce Wayne, the perfect partner for Batman to help, you know, not only raise him after his parents were killed, but to, to be his right hand when Bruce is out there being Batman. So I like this. It adds to the complexity and the background of, of Alfred and, I just hope that he comes back in the regular uh, DC continuity soon because I, I miss him for sure. So uh, you know, any thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, well, uh, not much to add to what you said. I, I enjoyed this. I mean, Alfred is a survivor. And uh, this is, I mean, this whole theme surviving in the winter and uh, super spy and always finds a way to stay alive. I mean, you could definitely see, is, is it really surprising that this guy ultimately ends up being uh, the butler to Batman? I mean, uh, no, it really isn't. There's a really odd... Uh, who's the writer here? Scott Brian Wilson. Scott Brian Wilson, because the, the writer's got an odd habit here. Every now and then on one of the panels, he's like... There's one panel where Alfred is... The older Alfred is struggling to stand, and there's like arrows pointing to Alfred's knees, and in the caption it says, not what they used to be. And then and then there'll be another panel where he, Alf, younger Alfred's in, in the snow... In the barren snow, and there'll be a panel that says, uh, you know, pointing to the, the background saying, wild, barren, empty nothingness. It's almost as if the artist or the letter wrote down something from the script, the comic script that wasn't supposed to be on the page. Like, like <laughs> n none of none of this needs to be on the page. I mean, we already know it's a wild, barren, empty nothingness. The art tells us that. I don't know why they're telling us that. In, in, you know, it's the oddest thing with, and you've, uh, those watching on YouTube can see this, but for those listening on the podcast, there's, there, there's literally, there, there's arrows pointing to areas in the art describing what is being drawn. I mean, it's the oddest thing. There's even one panel where there's arrows pointing to the ceiling and it actually says, you know, uh, uh, starting to collapse. Well, we know that because the art tells us that it's, <laughs> and then it, there's a, there's a fight scene with an arrow pointing to Alfred's mouth and it says trying not to inhale smoke. Well, again, can we not assume that from the art? It's this the oddest thing. And yet this is, this is something that I haven't mentioned, but it's been in every single issue since issue one. This is clearly something that's intentional on the part of this, the, uh, the writer and the artist. And I find it a really odd thing because it's 
completely unnecessary and it doesn't really enhance the narrative. It doesn't take away from it, but it's almost comical at this point. So it's kind of an odd, interesting I think approach. It's- yeah, I, I think it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be sort of tongue in cheek. That's the way I take it anyway. But yeah, it, it is. It is kind of funny. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on. Wonder Woman number seven eighty one is is next, uh, starting a, a new chapter in uh, the life of Wonder Woman through a glass darkly. Part one, written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. Uh, Marcio Takara is the artist. Tamara Bonvillan does the colors, and Pat Broso on letters. Uh, and the main cover is a Terry Dotson and Rachel Dotson cover that uh, I really enjoyed, actually. Uh, but I'm curious, you're, you're much more of the Wonder Woman expert than me, Rocky. What do you think of this? <laughs> well, first, I just want to be clear. Uh, I've read a lot of, I'm not saying I'm a Wonder Woman expert. I just, it just sort of bothers me that this is, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm just getting frustrated because I, um, and now I just, I clicked on the wrong comic. So I got to, I got to buy some time for myself. But look, Wonder Woman, we finally got Wonder Woman where she's back from, she's back on Earth, right? And, and last issue, uh, last issue was, uh, you know, her, her sort of settling in. And now I was hoping that with issue 781, we would finally have Wonder Woman, uh, do what she was supposed to do at the beginning because I don't know, like, uh, I think Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad as writers, I think they missed the memo coming out of Death Metal that the the whole reason why Wonder Woman didn't join the Quintessence and uh, thereby avoiding being killed by Darkseid, she didn't she avoided she didn't want to become part of the Quintessence. In other words, Diana did not assume a higher place in the multiverse because she chose to come back because the cosmic gods told her that there was this looming threat that was going to be, you know, uh, be a danger to, to, to the universe. Uh, so that's why she decided to come back. And Wonder Woman now is finally back. And what do we get in this issue now? <laughs> so I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm going to, I'm going to rant. And, uh, all this issue consists of, so she has, she, she has lunch with Ada Candy and they, you know, they, they just have lunch. They talk about Steve Trevor. Uh, they talk about Dr. Uh, uh, Psycho or Dr. I guess Kizko or he's Dr. Psycho who we saw in the, in the first story arc where Valhalla, where he was using his, he was involved with the machinations involving the, the, the Valkyrie and, and, and Wonder Woman's angsting over the fact she doesn't, she doesn't want to talk to Steve. So, and then she, nonsensically wonder woman wants to go and she she talks with she talks with dead man boston brand now why does she want to talk to boston brand like this is what doesn't make sense now for some reason i guess clunan and conrad as writers they really want to establish some sort of rapport between dead man and wonder woman now what doesn't make any sense is wonder woman's love interest in the first 10 issues was siegfried right and he was he he's technically now that she's back in the present siegfried's been dead now for thousands of years and he's basically in valhalla now and before wonder woman left when they separated siegfried gave wonder woman a gift of his sword she he gave her his sword for some reason now wonder woman feels compelled to return the sword to his resting place why? This is ridiculous. He gave you the sword for a reason. Use it. Also, aren't you supposed to be looking for the looming threat? How come you're not contacting Justice League Incarnate? How come you're not doing that? 
How come we're getting, why are we getting this story? Why do we need, why is she going to dead man to try to go to the resting place of Siegfried to give him the sword back? Why? It, it, this, this makes no sense to me. There, there's no connection. It, it, it's just absolute, it's just craziness to me. And, and it's boring as hell. It's boring. Nothing happens. And she goes, and then Dead Man uses his powers to sense where Siegfried is. Well, we know he's dead. Well, okay, so now we're going to find where the graveyard of Siegfried is so you can go return the sword. It, does this constitute excitement? This is, I mean, is this what Wonder Woman really, is this really what she wants to do? She finally comes back. She just saved the multiverse. Now she's come back to save it from a looming threat. But she wants to return the sword to some guy she slept with on numerous occasions over the first 10 issues. Is this what a responsible heroine does? Like, I'm, <laughs> I mean, this is ridiculous to me. And I just, I just find the whole thing absolutely, you know, look, the art's great. I, I didn't, I didn't mind the art. But other things, Steve Trevor here uh, is attacked by this Wonder, I don't know, this Wonder Woman clone. I, I don't really know why. Uh, so this thing's, I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't understand what's going on. I, I'm not really sure what this big deal is. Dr. Psycho of all things is now, uh, ends up, I don't know. He end, um, I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on there. Dr. Psycho is involved in some sort of storyline going forward here. He's got some sort of artifact. And, uh, so he's achieved some artifact. Not really sure what the artifact does. Meanwhile, Wonder Woman goes on a plane with Dead Man to go to the resting place of Siegfried to, I guess, return the sword. Why don't you just take, why, why don't you fly there? Why you go on a jet? Uh, again, do the writers not know this is Wonder Woman? Did she forget how to fly? She's already got her powers back. Why is she on a jet? Uh, although I, I will give compliments. She's, she looks, she's wearing glasses. It's almost like, does Wonder Woman have a secret identity now? What, why is she wearing glasses? Is she in disguise? So she has a secret identity. She doesn't have a secret identity. I know, but I just, I mean, I like the art. I like the callback, but I just find it, it's, it's interesting artistic choices, but I, it's not served by a good story in my mind, or at least the, uh, this isn't consistent with what my expectations were. I mean, I'm going to, we'll see where it goes, but you know, Wonder Woman it ends with Wonder Woman looking out the plane and she's, she's being followed by a bunch of clones of herself and um, you know, I don't know, I guess, silly me. I just, I thought Wonder Woman was going to care about, you know, sa saving the multiverse from a looming threat, but no, she's more concerned about returning a sword to a dead lover. Uh, this just blows me away. I, and this is boring as hell. And, uh, meanwhile, she's angsting over Steve Trevor. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm very frustrated and I'll leave it at that. What do you think, Jace? <laughs> you know, I didn't dislike it as much as you, um, <laughs> I, I will say, yeah, the whole she can't talk to Steve Trevor thing. I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> and, you know, I'll, I'll push back a little bit on you. She does give a reason why she wants to take the sword back. She, she feels like she's holding on to more than just the sword. So uh, in, in my mind, and, you know, the writers don't come right out and say it, and maybe I'm jumping to the wrong conclusion here, but it feels like there's a little bit of guilt there. And, and I don't know that she should necessarily have guilt because she had this relationship when she thought she was dead. He gave her the sword. He gave it to her. Like right, but but the way I'm reading it is that if she keeps the sword, then she can't have a relationship with Steve Trevor because it's a symbol of the relationship and the feeling she had for Siegfried. He's been dead for thousands of years, so she needs to 
Wow, I, I never thought of it that way. I never thought of it. Lay, lay the sword to rest. So at that point, she then can stop to talk to Steve Trevor because right now she can't <laughs> talk to him because she feels guilty that she, you know, went behind his back. Even though they're not technically together, they have no obligation to be faithful to each other. And she was dead. And if he dated, you know, she couldn't. The whole friend Ross Rachel thing. We were on a break. I thought yeah. you were dead. Yeah, so I, exactly. I, I get, you know, I, I get that, and I, I don't know if that's the reason or not. She whatever. didn't seem to care about Steve Trevor when she was banging Siegfried for ten no, issues. No, that. exactly. But now it's a symbol of of the guilt. Um, and then as far as her being on the plane, I first thing I thought was, yeah, why are they flying? But she does. They she does say, uh, you know, and and dead man asks her, why are we taking a plane? Well, sometimes I need to sit with my thoughts. A nine hour flight will allow me to do just that. <laughs> I hate flying, not because I'm scared the plane's going to crash. I, whatever, you know, the reason I don't like to fly is because I'm not rich and I can't afford to sit in first class where you actually have some room. The reason I don't like to fly is it's super uncomfortable and cramped. Uh, and it's, yeah, that's just it. You're stuck there. So if I was Wonder Woman and I could get somewhere quicker, I would get there quicker. I don't understand this at all. Um, and she's like, yeah, sometimes it's comfortable just letting someone else take control for a moment. I don't know these these this characterization of Wonder Woman. Th- that's not the Wonder Woman that I know. She's much more take charge than this. But again, I'm going to give them a little bit of uh, leeway. Feels like they're finally trying to get their run going. Um, so despite those couple of things, not sure what, <laughs> what bothers me more is this idea of Dead Man taking over a corpse. Like the whole yeah. thing the whole, <laughs> with Dead Man and the angst that he feels is because he doesn't have a body, right? Like he's yeah. always a ghost and and whatever and but, you know, and, and he could go inside a living person for a small amount of time, but obviously he doesn't want to take over, over their life because in his mind, that's murder. I, and so he's taking over a, a body and he's like, I ah, give it a week until it starts to decompose or whatever. He's even got the cadaver scars. Like this doesn't make sense to me, especially uh. the shirt that he's wearing with a V-neck that shows the cadaver scar. He gets on the plane wearing that same shirt. You're telling me that people don't know what the scar is on his chest? Yeah, I know. Take one look at him. TSA, when he went through security, would take one look at him and go, what in the hell? Why is this dead body trying to get on the plane? So I'm not sure what they're trying to do with Dead Man here. I understand that for whatever reason, like you said, they want to establish this rapport between Dead Man and Wonder Woman. But this isn't the way to do it. (laughs) Having him inhabiting a, a dead body, this is not. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this is not this is not the way way to do it. Yeah. Uh, but I am intrigued. Um, yeah. I'm intrigued by this idea that there's these simulacra of Wonder Woman, these different versions. They look slightly different. The one that Steve uh, that attacked Steve Trevor, he shot it. It sort of it sort of shattered like glass. So what exactly is going on there? Yeah, I'm I'm curious. Can this can this go somewhere? I like the idea that there's multiple threads. We got something going on with Doctor Psycho here that we're wonder about as well. So I'm going to give him a little bit of runway here to to see. Uh, what I don't want to see is what happened with the first storyline where it just was interminable and went on way too long because yeah, let's, let's get some three, four five issue arcs going. Let's figure out what's going on with these clones. And that's, that's done four or five issues. Then let's do the Dr. Psycho story. That's four or five issues. Let's find out what this looming threat was. That's four or five issues. I like the idea of having subplots because that feels very old school to me. Uh, that's how comics were when I first started reading them. Everything wasn't, you know, written for the trade. Um, but yeah, you can't drag them on too long, uh, because that's where it sort of loses the plot for me. As far as the art goes, I'd much rather have Travis Moore. The, the Marcio Takara art was a little messy in my mind. It wasn't awful, uh, but it was a little inconsistent. There are times where it, it worked for me better than others. 
Uh, a lot of times it was the action panels that I felt were, were kind of messy. Uh, and and I've, I feel like I've seen better art from uh, Takara at times. But the talking head scenes, uh, that's where his art seemed to shine. So, yeah, uh, yeah just, just a little bit of uh, up and down. As far as the, the backup story, uh, it's written by Vida Ayala, What Lies Beneath Part 1. Skylar Partridge does the art. Ramulo Fajardo Jr. is on colors and Pat Broso on letters. Fantastic art, first of all. Beautiful colors. Uh, like this art is is amazing. Like Skylar Partridge is is a, an artist that you like. Take note of that name because you're going to see her art showing up in a lot of places. And I can see her really taking that sort of uh, Amanda Connor trajectory where uh, people be a big fan of her. Manuel Lupacino, uh, maybe you know, in kind of in that vein. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did I did enjoy the story. It's basically uh, the story of how the Bana Migdal tribe uh, of Amazons gets new recruits, gets new blood. And so I, I appreciated that context. I thought the scripting and the pacing from Vida Ayala was done very, very well. And I feel like a lot of the reasons we're getting so many different stories of different um, aspects of the Amazons, it's right there. There's a little kind of uh, dialogue box right above the title. It's a road to the trial of the Amazons, which we know is a big event that's coming next year. So we're getting a chance and all these various Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman related titles to see all these different aspects of the Amazon because they're all going to come together in this big event, whatever, uh, whatever it is. So, uh, yeah, I thought it worked really, really well. Uh, and I, I yeah. especially love the Skylar Partridge uh, art. And uh, I especially loved the way um, the way uh, Skylar Partridge draws Artemis, yeah. like with her classic costume and she looks formidable and she looks beautiful. And yeah, I just, I thought it was fantastic. So yeah. Uh, any uh, thoughts on the backup Rocky? The backup is fantastic. The backup made the, the backup made the issue. I have, I straight up, I've got really, I, I hate to be so hard. I'm, I'm sorry, but I just got no interest in what the main story in Wonder Woman Diana is, it's clearly not going anywhere important. It just isn't. I mean, it's not, Wonder Woman clearly is not focused. She's not looking, what she, she's not doing her job. Uh, and, uh, you know, and again, when my, when my criticism just involves me playing script doctor, I realize that's me being unfair. I shouldn't, it's, I'm not the writer. So it's kind of, I realize I'm kind of being a jerk playing script doctor. And that's kind of what my criticism was of Wonder Woman this week. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. But it's just like when something is so obvious that she's supposed to be doing and we it's been teased and told and she's finally back and she's not dealing with the looming threat. But okay, I won't beat that dead horse anymore. The backup. I love the backup because you 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 said it. We're starting to see how different Amazons recruit and get and populate themselves because let's face it, when you have no man, how on earth do you repopulate? Well, we yeah. know on Themyscira, we know that we know from the Queen, uh, from Nubia and the Amazon story, they got the Well of Souls. And uh, now here with the Banner McDowell tribe, we know that they sort of recruit women from all over the world with different backgrounds and and they they run them through a gambit or a test and and so that's very interesting and I'm sure that well hopefully with in wonder in the pages of Wonder Girl we'll get some idea what the Brazilian tribe of Amazons what their background is more than what we've already gotten so I like this and the idea of this is leading to trial of the Amazons does that mean just the Banner Godal tribe does that mean all of them presumably it means all the three tribes of Amazons it's really uh, it's really good. I agree with you 100%. Skylar uh, Patridge is absolutely uh, uh, an artist to watch 
fantastic. And Romeo Fajuto Jr., my favorite colorist, does an absolutely bang-up job. This is excellent. I'm really intrigued here. Uh, between Nubia and the Amazons and uh, this backup, this is, this is, that's the best that that heightens my interest in in Wonder Woman lore more so than anything and I just I continue to be disappointed with the story in the main Wonder Woman title uh the main story but this backup was good yeah I agree 100 percent uh okay so up next is Batman Urban Legends number nine uh now unfortunately they didn't put a, a credits page like they normally do in here so I'm just going to give the credits to the various stories as we as we talk about them. The first one is a Fear State tie-in disinformation campaign. This is part two of two, and this is the Batwoman uh, Red Alice story that started last issue with Alisa Wong. Uh, she's the writer, Vasco Gregev, or Georgiev. I think it's Gregev. That's the way you pronounce it. It's Russian. Uh, he's the artist. Rain Barreto handles the colors and Becca carry on letters. Um, and so interesting, like I keep, I hear that name Alyssa Wong and I keep thinking back to the Batman, the imposter because it's detective Wong in there. And I keep like, wait, this is a, one's a real person and one is fiction. But, uh, but anyway, um, I really in, enjoyed this. And I, I, I think that even though that this is um, part two of a, a, a story that is, you know, a complete story, there's a lot here. Uh, it, it, it gives, Kate Kane's sister, who was Red Alice, a chance to sort of reconcile her her different personas. It's almost like she has split personality with the uh, the Beth side of her, the Beth Kane side of her, as opposed to the Red Alice side of her. And in here, we we see her sort of, and again, it's kind of tropey and it's not the most original idea, but we see her sort of in her own mind come face to face with herself, her her Red Alice persona and her Beth persona, and kind of merge them together and, and maybe she'll be, you know, more stable and, and can even possibly be an ally for Batwoman going forward. So uh, I never understand why Batwoman titles don't last um, because I think she's a fantastic character and, and really interesting to me. Um, I, I thought when Tynan was doing it, it was good. I thought when Marguerite Bennett was doing, was doing it, it was good. When J.H. Williams do, was doing it, it was good. Now he left the book because DC wouldn't let uh, him marry off Kate Kane and um, the question Rene Montoya, um, so I can see why why he left. But uh, yeah, I I and I you know Tynan wrote Batwoman in the pages of Detective Comics, and that was well done as well. I just think she's she's a good character, and I, you know I'd much rather have a Batwoman title than than Red Hood. Not that I dislike Jason Todd at all, but I just think that she she deserves her own title. I think she's interesting enough, and it's separate enough and different enough. And if you know Red Alice has managed to her sisters managed to kind of come to a new status quo she could be a great supporting character for the book so but anyway that's just me playing editor as far as the story itself goes uh yeah it ties into fear state and what it does actually it, it's pretty important and i have a feeling a lot of people that are reading fear state may miss this um but we see kate kane or batwoman and uh, her sister beth going up against uh, some magistrate that are being manipulated by the anti-oracle into thinking that the anti-oracle is Simon Saint. And she's giving orders to the magistrate to take out uh, Batwoman and Red Alice. But the other thing that we learn in here is that it's the seer. What we learn is the anti-oracle and the seer are the same character. 
this is the first time we have like concrete proof in the story that this is these two characters are the same person because like rocky was saying earlier there's so much convoluted different plot threads and characters and whatnot and all these different heroes and, and new heroes and new villains that james tynan has uh has introduced in his batman run that it can be very confusing and again going back to his newsletters and, and how he talks about choosing to introduce all these new characters and, and the reasons behind it and all that. I'm not going to get into them here, but they're, they're fascinating. And uh, I, I, I find it very enlightening. So interesting here. And I'm, I'm glad that they're the same character because in my mind, I can just put them in the same box now and it makes sense. And I don't have to try to keep track of, of one more character. So I feel like that was sort of the most important aspect of the story that we find out anti-Oracle and seer are the same characters. Second most important would be Beth, and reconciling her red Alice half. Uh, and as far as the, the art and the colors and, and, you know, uh, the visuals of the story, I thought it was fantastic. Really, really well done. Uh, enjoyed this story. Uh, I, again, I, I would love for there to be a Batwoman title. And I think I loved Alyssa Wong's take on the sisters here, the Kane sisters. And I would be happy to read a Batwoman title, uh, by her, uh, with the same art team too. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was really, 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 really good despite the fact that it's a future state tie-in. And other than that, in terms of future state, other than that reveal that anti-Oracle and Seer are one and the same, it doesn't really advance or do much for the, the future state storyline, honestly. So I don't know. What did you think, Rocky? Uh, you know, this is this is one of those moments where I'm glad I've got, uh, there, there's two of us because I uh, I, I kind of skim read this. Uh, it, it never really resonated with me. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a Batwoman fan, and I'll be honest, I've, I'm less of a Batwoman fan precisely because the show is so terrible. And I hate to say it, but it's true. <laughs> this character, I mean, Red Alice is everywhere. She's just everywhere. I mean, give us a new character already. Uh, every time I see Batwoman, it seems to be the same villain. I don't know. It's just uh, I have no interest in this character. Uh, this story is just is not she, for me. Is, is Red Alice a character? On, I've never seen the show, so is Red well, Alice pretty much. It looks exactly like the one on TV, and it's just so boring oh, after gotcha. a while. The other one, and you know, maybe maybe this is you know maybe this is just me being unfair, and and and, and <laughs> look, but I just this is just so this feels kind of derivative to me. Like it just seems like it's it's always women villains, women this, and it's just like. I don't know. I, she needs more of a. She's more of a variety of uh, of rogues gallery. And, and again, I hate to say it, but this it's so it's tropey in so far as I, I do think women characters need more male villains. Uh, but but maybe that's unfair of me. Maybe because when I think, well, maybe you know, Batman has mostly male villains. So who am I to criticize Batwoman for having too many female villains, et cetera, et cetera? So. Uh, maybe I'm just being a negative Nelly here, but I, I did not know uh, uh, that's the last. Uh, I'm just reading some dialogue here. Uh, I, I never picked up that this was Seer, that that was also Seer. So thank you for that. Yeah, I, you got, I, I would yeah, not have you, made that. I, I didn't. I just, I'm reading it right now. So, but I, yeah, if you I go, go to the page where Red Alice is carving the stuff into the door, the circle and the, like the sun thing. And she says she calls herself the anti oracle, the Seer. So that's where it's, and then as oh. you, with that context, as you read the rest of the issue, it's it's clear because then they wow. they, they refer to her sometimes as anti oracle and sometimes they refer to her as as seer. So, wow, yeah, I, yeah that's uh, 
that actually, you know, knowing that, that actually makes me uh, dislike the story even more. And not only that, not, not, you know, it's not even, maybe it's not the story's fault, but that, that gets me angry at editorial all the more. I mean, that, that, that just frustrates me. It just frustrates me. It's something that, um, I, I don't know. It, it just does. It's, Im- it's important and it should be more clear. It, it well, I think it should be more clear, and it should have been be, a better build up, and it just it just seems a little bit. Uh, I don't know. It just seems a little bit. Uh, I mean, I I don't think they've done an adequate enough job building up who this seer is supposed to be, who this anti oracle is. I I think it's just been because it's dragged on a little bit too much. This fear state. It, I've been I've been enjoying it for the most part, but but it does feel that they just literally they just want to drag it out an extra two or three issues just, and I've been so patient for so long and it's still not over, but at least this, at least this story is over here. Uh, but again, the, the whole, uh, you know, the seer is still around or this anti Oracle is still around and it's just a little frustrating, but I admit maybe I'm just, it's maybe it's not a character that's, that's for me anymore because it, you know, whatever, I'll just, I'll just shut up now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So up next we have, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better way to put it, we have a story about the... Uh, uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Yeah, Tweedledee and Tweedledum story in Down the Rabbit Hole. And it's basically a story about the dysfunction of the sort of healthcare system in the United States. For writer Sam Johns, Carl Mostert does the art, David Barron on colors, Tam Nap- uh, Tom Napolitano on colors. And basically, uh, Dumb is trying to take care of Tweedledee and when I say take care of them, I mean like literally take care of them. They they have a bunch of cash stashed away from their last job. They don't want for money, but there's something wrong with, with D and he's trying to get a medical attention. Despite having all this money, he can't like he needs, he, first he goes to the pharmacy. I just want medicine. The pharmacy's like, I, what kind of medicine? Like you need to take them. You need insurance. Blah, blah, blah. Tries to get insurance. Insurance is like, well, you can only sign up for insurance during this window and that window and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, man, I just, I just need somebody to, to help out my cousin. Who, who is, you know, is having medical issues. So, um, and it's, I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's topical uh, and it's all in, and, and obviously I'm, I'm saying that a little tongue in cheek that it's a sort of a commentary on the dysfunction of the medical uh, or healthcare industry in, in the U S but uh, I mean, there's some, some truth to that. So, I mean, it's a Tweedledee and a Tweedledum story and the, uh, white rabbit shows up at the beginning or, or uh, March Hare. What do they call her? March. I mean, March Harriet is her yeah. name and she was in um, David Finch did that cover. That was uh, yeah. really, really popular. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, I mean, I, I wouldn't think that I would ever be interested in a, a story about Tweedledee and Tweedledum. And I wouldn't necessarily think, you know, if you told me, okay, we're going to put a story of Tweedledee and Tweedledum into Batman urban legend, that this is what, what it would be about but i'll give credit to sam johns the writer i think they do a good job of of making this sort of compelling and and you do sort of empathize with what tweedledum is going through here i mean guy just wants to help out his cousin and he can't get the help he needs he's getting the runaround so yeah it's uh it's sad in a in a realistic way you know this could easily be somebody you know in in the United States, just trying to get healthcare and trying to navigate this broken system. So interesting editorial choice to put in here and, and technically a well-done comic. I thought Carl Mostart does a great job with line work. David Barron is, you know, 
been working in the industry for god i think 30 years now so yeah his color work is fantastic so all in all pretty solid story what do you think rocky yeah I, i'm actually this story shocks me of all <laughs> like i would never a tweedledee and tweedledum story and uh to have the center central piece of the narrative being you know the the healthcare system and trying to get treatment for 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 his cousin it just it uh, i um look i'm just going to be blunt i it was the art was really good i just i just wasn't really interested in it to be honest with you i i mean i feel sorry for him. these are both intellectually challenged individuals i feel sorry for my guess i i mean i'm i'm canadian i guess i i we have maybe our healthcare systems a little different here despite what half of americans seem to think they know about canadian healthcare system we actually have a pretty good one and um it's um uh, i don't know is it if it's is it that bad in the us that if you're uh you know if you're that overweight you got a twin brother that you 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 your twin cousin you can't find uh you can't find i i just I didn't care about this. I just didn't care about the storyline. And then everyone's they every it just seems forced. I mean, is it really that difficult? They're 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 loaded with cash and they can't get treatment. Really, I don't. I almost don't even believe it to be honest. And I I just and I I, I don't know of all the all the resources they would have. I would have thought that they'd been. Anyways, I'm being. Uh, I I just don't really quite get it. It wasn't funny. It wasn't entertaining. Uh. I guess the point was to make me feel sorry for these, I guess, but I just, I got no interest in these two. These two are, are bumbling idiots and I like them. I frankly like, I preferred the way, I can't believe I'm saying this. I prefer how Tom King wrote them when it, in his run and that's saying something. And I wasn't a big fan of Batman's Tom King run, but at least Tweedledee and Tweedledum were we're, we're, we're dumb. And here I just, I, I didn't quite, I, I didn't quite get this. It, it, the art's fantastic. I just, I, I don't really understand where, you know, I feel bad that if D, I don't want D to die. Uh, but I, I'm going to make a prediction here. I think it's just going to end up with Batman finding them. And then Bruce Wayne's going to use, throw a bunch of money at him and make, give him the best healthcare treatment he can, uh, in the next chapter. I think that's how this is going to end. So kind of, uh, you know, it's just going to be another way to prop up how cool Batman is. Um, so anyways, so I, yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm you're, a, you're, yeah. you're lucky you're in Canada and you've never uh, <laughs> had to deal with the healthcare system in the U.S. Because it really is that that it really is that bad. Okay. And it, it isn't if they if they were if Tweedledum was intelligent and had that money, then, yeah, he could find a way to, to navigate it. It's the fact that he isn't intelligent, doesn't understand the complexities of the system that makes the fact that he has money useless because. Usually it goes the other way. Usually a person is smart enough to figure out or to follow the directions that you're given and you just don't have the money to pay for it. But even yeah. if you have money, it, the system is so broken. Yeah. Like when he calls the insurance and they say, oh yeah, you can only sign up. You can only sign up for insurance. Everybody is mandated to have insurance in this country, health insurance, but you can only sign up and get it at certain times of the year, which really, again, yeah, it's yeah. really really bad but i so. just i don't know for me like as i i guess as a reader like maybe, maybe it is because i'm canadian i just i just didn't I, I didn't get into this story at all i just i mean well yeah i mean is that is even as an american who's knows how broken the system is is this really what i want to read about in my comics so yeah i mean i did feel sorry for them it's it's a again a technically well put together comic it's doing what i think it's meant to do the story is doing what it's meant to do it's eliciting emotion and, and empathy but 
again, it's just like who? Okay, I'm gonna write a story about the Tweedledee and Tweedledum that is a commentary on the healthcare system in the U.S. Wait, what? Who thought this was a good idea? So, but regardless, I'll give them props for putting. You know, technically, it's a well put together comic story. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I mean, you know, again, pacing and everything, struck dialogue. It was. Yeah. It was all good. It was all good. It was. It was just a subject matter. It just never really caught my yeah. caught my fancy. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, all right. Up next is an Azrael story. Azrael, Dark Knight of the Soul, Part Two, from writer Dan Waters, Nicola Zameta on art, Ivan Placenti on colors, Ariana Mayer on letters. Um, I don't have much to say about this one. I didn't really care for the art. Didn't care for the art that much in in Part One, and it's leaning into the whole idea of Azrael is frankly a religious nutbag, which is the least interesting aspect of him in my mind. Um, and I, I get why you want to do that and get back to his roots, but I, I love Azrael visually, and uh, I kind of wish that his origin wasn't so tied into religiosity and and you know faith and all that kind of stuff. Because writers, when they I feel like when they don't know what to do with Azrael, they just revert back to that. And if I don't want to say it feels lazy, but it's just it's not interesting to me. And maybe that's because I had religion forced down my throat you know, while I was growing up yeah. that it just, I have an aversion to it. Um, and so it's not what I want to read about, you know? Um, so yeah. I agree. I, yeah. I figure, I figure they should have Azriel go and rescue Tweedledee and Tweedledum. I mean, if he wants to there care for people and why doesn't he convert Tweedledee and Tweedledum to religion? Maybe he can get him free healthcare at the church he's at. Like, I mean, I just, I, I, I was not into this story either. I, I just, I, I just, he just seems like a fanatic and, and just spouting nonsense. I mean, he was infinitely more interesting when he was in space with Justice League Odyssey than he yep. is. Uh, you know, I'd rather have him stay in space and have some space adventures and go back to Gotham and become this this religious fanatic who seems to be, I don't know. I mean, I, I agree with Batman in the, in the opening chapter of this. I mean, if I was Batman, I'd be concerned about this lunatic too. I mean, I don't know. He's not doing religion any favors when he's scripted like this, but. You know, that's just, that's just me. I, I'm sorry I'm being negative. I, I did not, this is the worst issue of Batman Urban Legends, by the way, since issue one. I've, I've been enjoying this, but issue, this issue, this issue 10 was just, there wasn't a single story that, that, that resonated with me. Sorry. So well, I, we, I'm just well, giving we you a heads like, up. We both like the last story, uh, the first part, Outsiders the Fearful Part One. This that's is right. Finale. But, uh, so Brandon, yeah, Brandon Thomas is the writer, seeing Tormi on yeah. pencils. Val Fernandez on inks, Alejandro sure. Sanchez on colors, Steve Wand on letters. And, we, and, and yeah. you know, I, I did comment when we read the first part that I didn't see how this would only be worth or worthy of only two uh, issues because it was such a, a fantastic start. Yeah. Um, and although it does come to a satisfying conclusion, we get this double page spread with a bunch of dialogue boxes that basically give, gives us the conclusion of the story that should have played out over another issue or two because there just wasn't enough room. And I don't know if it was because schedules didn't line up for Brandon Thomas or with Batman urban legends, but yeah, it's a little disappointing that this, I feel like this story had more legs and I would have liked yeah. another chapter or two because it would have been interesting. It's still a satisfying conclusion. We got all the answers, but it's a definitely a, a situation where we're sh uh, told not shown yeah. what actually happens. And then the one thing I wasn't clear on. So, if you didn't read the first part or hear a review on the first part in the far in the future, this, this person, the fearful, uh, he's infected with two different strains of the scarecrows 
fear toxin and it kind of mutates in his body and it literally oozes out through his pores. And because of that, it's become this post-apocalyptic world and he rules all and everybody's scared and whatnot. So they send back a disembodied version of uh, Black Lightning, Jefferson Pierce, who's only, who can only be in his lightning form and he's tied to the Soul Taker sword. So they send the sword back through time with this magical demon arm that uh, uh, Duke Thomas has. Yeah, they, that's not ever really explained, but anyway, how he got that arm, but <laughs> sent back through time, meets up with the uh, outsiders in the past, and they try to nip this thing in the bud before it starts. And they're ultimately successful, even though we, we see the beginnings of that. And then, like I said, that double page spread gives us basically what goes down after that. Uh, and meanwhile, in far in the future, where Duke Thomas is, has been captured and is being held hostage by the fearful he got him hanging upside down and he's telling the fearful uh, Jonah is his, is his name. He says, don't worry, it's all going to be fixed and, and we're going to be here and, and time is just going to change out from under us. But time does change and they're successful in the past, but it's they still live in this post-apocalyptic hellhole. Yeah, That's what it, I didn't understand. Yeah, I'm like, wait, why didn't like so it's no longer the fearful that rules the future, but the future still sucks. I mean, that, yeah, that was terrible. Yeah. I sort of expected, you know, this like wave to come along, like a crisis wave to come along and go across <laughs> the page. Uh, and I then agree. it would be like more of like a bright utopia, maybe like the, the Gotham city that we saw, even though it was an illusion, the Gotham city that we saw in Scott Snyder's justice league run. If you remember that, uh, when it, yeah. when it was, um, the, the world forger or whatever that, that was fooling them into thinking it was a brighter Gotham. Man, what a, what a jip for the outsiders, for future Duke Thomas. He, he succeeded in his mission. They went and nipped this fearful uh, person in the bud and stopped him from becoming this evil despot that ruined the world. And he no longer has even has the, the, the demon arm. Um, but he still lives in a post-apocalyptic hellhole. Man, that kind of sucks. What a, what a letdown. <laughs> so I just thought it was interesting. Again, I, I would love to get more stories of either this future outsiders uh, tale from Brandon Thomas to find out, okay, why does it still suck in the future? Um, or even more of this idea of the outsiders in the present day that he introduced to us, where one of the outsider uh, members is a rotating uh, person, right? So we have the Jefferson Pierce of, of nowadays, we have Katana, we have Signal, yeah. Luke Thomas, we have a Metamorpho, but that fifth person rotates, like whoever needs the, the, the help of the other four becomes a temporary member of the outsiders. They take on their mission and then, you know, move on way to give some lesser used heroes of the DCU uh, a chance to uh, get the spotlight basically. So, yeah. And, and the art was absolutely fantastic. I give a lot of credit to Siren Torme for giving us really dynamic, fantastic art, a lot of detail, and especially did a good job in that two page spread that I was talking mm -hmm. about where, we basically get the second or the third and fourth parts of the story sort of all yeah. played out there over that double page spread. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's still fantastic. Um, you know, if I'm nitpicking at all, it's only because it's so good <laughs> that I, I wish we could have, it could have had more real estate, you know? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of pushback. I like, I, I love Brandon Thomas, but I, this was, this was just a miss for me. And it was, and, and maybe in fairness to him, uh, I mean, it, it's odd. I have the same criticism as you, but you loved it, and and I didn't, uh, because this, I get the strong sense, and it's laid out in this two page spread. I mean, we are told. I mean, this could have, what's what's said in this two page spread could could take two or three issues, and sure. and I know we know how Brandon Thomas how well how well he can craft a story, 
when he's given the the real estate to do so. And uh, he's got the artists here that could aid with that. But this just feels really, really rushed. I, I'd be, frankly, I was a little confused, even with the two-page spread uh, truncated information. Uh, the art is fantastic. I love the look of that arm. It's just fantastic. I mean, I, I keep thinking that there's 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 parts of this story that I didn't, I, I've, I feel like I've missed something, even though everything has been wrapped up. Uh, the ending is atrocious, absolutely atrocious. I mean, I, I don't understand that. Now the future, I don't know, the future doesn't change. I When when you change the past, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know, maybe the rules of time travel are different. I guess you can, uh, you know, Tony Stark can tell me, no, it's not like uh, Back to the Future. I don't know. Does anybody know? Anyways, I it, the, the whole thing is just very messy to me. And this I got to, it's really unfortunate, but the closer we get to resolving all these future state storylines, the more it's quite obvious that uh, I think DC has realized that it didn't hit, it hasn't gone well, and it, boy, oh boy, has, it's, it really, I hate to say it, but it seems to me that they really, the editors never did, nobody bothered to call each other and say, by the way, how are you resolving your storyline? By the way, how are you resolving storyline? I mean, how many, I wonder how many writers know that the seer is anti-oracle? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm being kind of a sarcastic bastard right now, but I, I kind of wonder this a little bit here because I'm a little bit frustrated because I've I've been given cut in DC. I have been enjoying myself. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna completely flip flop here, but I am a little disappointed with how these things are sort of wrapping up. For those of us that really invested in the story to have these things, and I know Brandon Thomas is he's got a good story here, but like you said, when he's got to just bombard us with the ending by telling us. Uh, it's just, it's just really unfortunate and it, it just didn't work for me. So this is a mess. And, and as, as an overall, this, to be in this issue, there isn't a single story in this issue that, that, that frankly, I like. that was a huge disappointment. You know, I mean, I, I'm a completionist for Batman Urban Legends, so I'm going to be picking up, uh, I'll pick up the Frank Avella cover here, uh, of, of Bat, Batwoman, because I, I love, I got a huge Frank Avella, uh, collection, but beyond that, it's, the stories are a miss for me. Yeah, I don't hold Brandon Thomas. I, it's got to be either an editorial issue. Brandon didn't have room in his schedule, or or Urban Legends only had room for a two part story. I don't hold him um, at fault for this, but but yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm going to give him credit because it, it was a good concept. So maybe I'm I'm giving him you know props on the concept more than the the execution because yeah, there uh, there are a lot more questions than answers when it comes to the. <laughs> this story so anyway that uh that does it for this uh this week uh dc comics everybody there are a, a couple of other books that are hitting your shelves that i'll mention harley quinn the animated series the eat bang kill tour number three is out uh batman and scooby-doo mysteries number eight uh, also static season one number four which i talked about on the last episode but only one of the covers came out and i think it was cover b actually that came out last week and this week cover a comes out so uh, there's a few other books that you might want to be on the lookout for. And there's also some, uh, some collections as well. So let me let you know what those are uh, that are going to be out this week from DC. So you can look for them on your, your local shop. So we've got uh, Batman Superman volume two world's deadliest uh, trade paperback, which is all about the, uh, the auteur IO that great story that Rocky and I both loved with uh, the Yvonne Reese art and, uh, we've got Superman, the one who fell trade paperback. That's the first collection of Philip Kennedy Johnson's uh, Superman run. Uh, also the man bat 
black i don't know no, i guess it wasn't black label because he died in in continuity and then they brought him back with task force z so the man bat three issue series that gets a, a collection as well uh and then justice league dark the new 52 omnibus is out that's a hardcover i think it's well over 100 pages and collects the the whole run of uh of justice league dark which is some of the earliest mikhail yanin art over at dc so if you're a fan of him might want to be on the lookout for that. So and a lot of James Tynion, uh, he wrote a lot of Justice League Dark as well. Yep, exactly. So, uh, well, like I said, that's going to do it, everybody. Thanks for joining us as always. Don't forget if you're just listening to us uh, on the podcast audio version, head over to YouTube. Make sure you do a search for Comic Boom. That's Comic Space Boom with an exclamation point, and subscribe to Rocky's channel. Ring that notification bell so you know when new episodes are coming out, and be sure to give this episode a like. Uh, conversely, if you're checking us out on YouTube, be sure you head over to your smart device, your, uh, either your, uh, podcast app or whatever, uh, podcast platform that you use and do a search for the comic source on there and give us a, a subscription. So you you can be sure to listen to all our other content. You know, we do the, the spoiler free new comic book Wednesdays and a lot of, uh, creator owned spotlights and creator interviews and all that kind of good, good stuff. So. Uh, really appreciate you guys joining us as always. And hey, Rocky, great to have you back. Uh, missed you last week, buddy. You bet. Thanks. Well, I'll catch you guys later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.